You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Um, today, today, I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Malakuta Rick. Now, if you're from Malakuta, you don't know Malakuta Rick as Malakuta Rick, but if you're from anywhere else, he's famously known as Malakuta Rick. Um, been trying to get Rick into the hot seat for quite some time. He is an elusive creature, um, but nonetheless... Today, being a man of his word, he came and sat down and, um, and, and I got a slice of the pie. Um, now, I, I mean, I was just, I'm always mesmerized by Rick's stories. They are, he's a great storyteller and he's lived one hell of a life through a period of time that couldn't be replicated in today's scenario, um, really in a first world nation, you know, like obviously rules and regulations and things like that have changed over the years to the point that the wild man antics that happened 30 40 years ago around australia in most probably most working uh environments just you know today is a sackable offense for the everyday goings on back then um so anyway rick runs us through some of those experiences um you know he, he's had a life on the water um you know uh uh, scallop diver, ab diver, pearl diver, um, you, you know, uh, spear fisherman, you know, a life on the water. He's a modern day pirate. And um, I, I say that in jest. And uh, so the, the, the slice of pie that you get, I felt like I could have just let the microphones, I could just could have let him go. Like um, there's a book in Rick. Um, nonetheless, you get a slice of it um, in, in our chat today so anyway i just rick's just left and it's just like <laughs> his stories are unbelievable they're, they're great any um so i hope you enjoy our chat um now i'm just going to leave with one thought i was um at a barbecue um over the weekend uh and i saw my uncle I hadn't seen him in years and and we were talking about this and that and uh, you know my cousin was there and then and one of his mates ron ron and um and i don't know how it came up but somehow someone was talking about purgatory and hell and uh and my uncle looked over and it was pretty cold it was a cold night and he 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 hates the cold and he looked to me and goes to me hell is white and i was just like he goes i fucking hate the cold hell's white and i just was like that is such a visual like i'd never thought that hell could be white it's always fire um but imagine i think a white hell is even worse fucking yeah, I'd prefer the white hell myself. I started thinking, uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I'd rather a hot hell, just cruising around in boardies, been poked at by the dubs of Trident, way better than shivering your tits off. Um, anyway, whoever you are out there in the wide world, there's some to chew on. Um, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Rick. See you on the other side. Wow, wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total far for Ramon. Hi, this is David 
Luck it was. And so your grandfather was out on holiday. He was, yeah, coming to visit the family. And was was that your mum's dad? Yeah, my mum's dad, yeah. And so was your mum the first person to leave Holland? Um, from their family. Yeah. Oh, no, her older sister had come out first. So a whole bunch of them had left Holland. The situation at the end of the war in Holland was pretty poor. No food, no World work. World War II? World War II, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right, and so Germany had gone and destroyed it, basically, or...? Yeah, World War Two is a pretty well-known story, John. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might have heard of it. <laughs> Didn't just have it up Malakuta. So it was a whole world war. The second yeah. world war. <laughs> yeah, he would kick the shit out of uh, out of Europe. Oh, they were, generally, my old man reckons they were always, always uh, pretty good to the Dutch because they considered them to be part of the Germanic race. So, you know, Hitler's... Hitler's rhetoric was, you know, you're part of us, you're our race. It's us against them, being the non-Aryans and Jews and whatever else they're against. So, yeah, Holland got pretty bashed up, went through the whole war. Situation at the end of the war, just no work, just bombed out country, no food. I think they had a great famine at the end of World War Two in Holland. It was, like, quite well known, just a massive food shortage for the Dutch. So, and I suppose, yeah, you've got a country that's just blown to pieces, not much prospects. So, I think $50, 50 pounds to come to Australia. So, my, my auntie, one of my tantas, um, my mum's older sister, she came out first. And then my mum and dad got married. My dad was a merchant seaman, but uh, he decided to give up life at the sea to, um, yeah, move to Australia and started out here. So they moved up to where my um, auntie was living, which was up in the hills in Callista, or Callista Belgrave, up in the Dandenongs. And at what, And were you born yet? Or? Yeah, yeah, I was born here in Australia. Yeah. Furniture Gully Hospital. Yeah. Yep, and so born, born Aussie. Born Aussie, first one. No, I was a, a number three, so I'd already had two brothers. Oh, really? Were they both born here as well? Both born here as well, yeah. Yeah. And um, and so, but they don't live here anymore? Or one's One, one lives in England. One's... He's sort of had the, he got the European bug, went back to England. Yeah. And one, uh, the older brother lives in Malakuta. What does he do in Malakuta? Uh, he's a lighthouse keeper up there. Originally a plumber by trade. Our dad was a plumber. Yeah. So we all did like the the hard trade in the ground and then um like a lot of plumbers find something else to go and do <laughs> it's pretty hard work but how does how do you, how does one find themselves in a lighthouse is it a good gig do people want it oh it's a pretty sought after job beautiful location big epic stone houses it was used to be a full-time job the malakuta lighthouse or was the it was actually a light keeper who maintained the light and did weather reports. But as the lights got modernised, they put in a lower strength light so they didn't have the full old original lighthouse lamp, which has a huge big uh, Fresnel lens, I think they're called, the big special lens that rotates around, concentrates the beam. They changed over to uh, LED small lights, uh, you know, different candle power strength. So the role of the lightkeeper had changed from being a, a weather observer, 
looking after the light, maintaining the light to a position nowadays where it's more of a... Um, the national parks are taken over the lease and they've got a couple of houses out there and you can go and lease the house. So it's more of a caretaker role. I think they'd still get paid to do weather observations for the bomb. So they go out and just record the actual uh, weather recordings from the bar- barometer and that kind of stuff. Record that and send that back to the bomb. And so that's a little bit of a top up on the pay. Nowadays they do one month on, one month off. So they do swings. So that's pretty interesting. Now I'm just going to double back a little bit. Now you, your nickname is Malakuta Rick and you were born in Ferntree Gully. How did one end up in Malakuta? Well, no, I'm, a, I'm only really known as Malakuta Rick down here. I've got a large, long Dutch surname. So I think if you told people my name in Torquay, who, if I told my surname, they wouldn't know who you're talking about. So I think I was always from Malakuta. You know, when I... When I go back to Cooter and call, crew call me Malakuta Rick, they sort of laugh. It's like, what the fuck you want? <laughs> Bit of a wanker thing. They've got a few different nicknames up me for up there. But, um, yeah, I think I was just Fipsies when I first came down. I used to hang out with the Raw guys, you know, the Gash and Raw crew, and I was just Fipsies, mate, from Malakuta. So and did the story... just kind of stuck. Did the, can I say, did the story come from you going over the button? There might have been... It was actually might have been written in tracks that yeah, Fibsy's mate Rick from Malakuta, so it was like yeah, Rick got Rick that got thrashed on the button. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you were uh, a teenager, obviously, did you, your brothers had moved to Malakuta? Is that what it? Um, no, we used to go there for family holidays. It yeah. was of my dad um, and his all his Dutch mates. They'd tow their boats and caravans up there. We'd do like two full months. Or you know the whole Christmas or the whole school break in Malakuta. Dad loved the ocean, so he had his own boat. Would have a tow a caravan up, then he'd turn around, drive straight back, go get the boat, come back. Then we'd spend our time there. So yeah, just adventuring around on the ocean up there. And then my brother, he surfed as well, so he moved to Kuta. Uh, and then I was having a bit of a hard time with my old man and a bit of a hard time at school. So I ended up going up to Cooter and started school up there and stayed with my big brother. So what, what did that look like? How did you get there? How, what was the... Oh, the first time I just went with my brother when I went and did school there. Yeah. And then I wasn't a particularly good student at school. Um, I didn't last very long there before. I think I might have been the first student to get expelled from Malakuta. So I got bumped from there and can back I, can, to can my parents. Just a typical Malakuta blow up, like you got to be really careful about what you say. I think I'd made some threat I was going to do something to the principal's or the vice principal's car. Then his car played up, and sure enough, I was guilty straight away, so I got just dragged in and kicked out. And they did all this testing. I said I was going to put sugar and oil in this guy's petrol tank. Careful what you say. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, before I know it, I was expelled. Family was sort of dragged through the mud, and it turned out, yeah, no sugar oil in the petrol tank, just... Just bad just luck. The way, just bad, bad luck. His car started blowing up just after I'd been telling this story. So, yeah, that didn't go well. So then I went back to Melbourne and I did another year at another school in Melbourne. I think I was on my third high school by, by about 14. And 
that didn't go so well down in Upway. I went to Upway High in the hills. That didn't go so good. And then that was it for school. I got special dispensation from the Minister for Education to leave school at 14. And, yeah, school was done. So no more schools would take me. So and, and, and into the workforce. What did your parents say to that? They were like, just, My yeah. dad didn't say... Um, I don't really remember the conversations like word for word. Probably, you know... What do you think your parents are going to say yeah, when you're yeah, just... No, yeah, <laughs> yes, totally. not going so good. And my dad was not a good communicator with me. He'd had a pretty tough life. His upbringing was really hard. So, yeah, he expected more. So it wasn't really good. So I didn't last very long. And I was sort of typical story hanging wrong, around with the wrong bunch of people. Got myself in a fair bit of trouble. Had a bit of a... I um impending running with the law, so I took off and ran for Malakuta. What were you in strife for? Can't say. <laughs> <laughs> Just the folly Are of you hanging splitting, around. Rick? Yeah, yeah, I'm sitting thinking about it. The folly of hanging around with older kids when you're younger, you know, it's like you know, quite often you hear parents saying about their kids hanging around with the wrong kids, and it's true, man. You can just be so badly influenced by the people you hang around with. Yeah. You know, having a hard time with your dad. You know, you're you're acting out stuff. You want attention. You got all this stuff going on, and you know, sometimes your best idea of attention is running with the law or that kind of stuff. So you're just really dumb, dumb, dumb stuff that could ruin your life. But yeah, I got away before. I don't know, I'd been called in with, to the cops a couple of times with my dad and he was pretty not happy about it. Actually, it was the first time I ever saw my dad. A memory that I can remember my dad sticking up for me was the police had come around <coughs> to take, wanted to interview me. And I'd have gone and answered the front door. I'd had to fess up and tell my mum what was happening because the other guys had already been busted. I was sort of down the list. Had to fess up, fairly scared. So my dad had, had um, for punishment, had given me hard labour of... He had a second block of land and it was covered in blackberries about 30 feet high. So my punishment was I had to just slash back blackberries every day. So he'd come home at lunchtime to make sure I was still there. Anyway, in the course of this, the police arrived. <clears throat> we had a big, long hallway. I answered the door, said, yeah, no worries. Walked around and went into the to get my dad, and the police had followed me into the house. And my dad, like, when he turned around and the police were standing in his kitchen, he just blew up, you know. He was just, get out, of, get out of my house, and made him walk backwards even though I was in trouble. And he, But his memory of the Germans and German police was just really strong, and he just, yeah, he was not a real big fan of police, my dad, or that police um, heavy-handedness kind of thing but he was too angry to even come to the police station with me because he said that if he heard what I'd been up to he, he couldn't control himself and he was pretty serious about it so my big brother took me Leo he sort of used to stand up for me a fair bit back then and yeah just went through that process and then the fear of what was going to happen to me with my dad was more scary than the fear of the police and yeah so i was out of there packed up my stuff and um i oh know my dad had a job for me with these dutch guys one of his dutch mates he dropped me off at this tulip 
friggin factory <laughs> Chulip factory Tesla's Chulip farm and he'd given me a flog in that morning he'd got he used to get a little oh he was pretty good at pushing his buttons I pushed his buttons pretty hard and I sort of sort of paid the price and then he took me to work and he sort of threw me you know dropped me off at this job and I was just like swearing like that was it I'm going and yeah as soon as he was out of sight I just turned around walked home went and packed me stuff I hid in the bushes till my mum left the house went in grabbed my stuff and I stole 10 bucks from my brother one of my brothers out of his you know in his jar and that was it I was off and I I took off down to Melbourne from the Dandenongs and I went and saw my either my middle brother who was a student and he was pretty cool and he knew you know thought I was having a pretty hard time with things so he got his mates around they said oh we're having Rick's going away Ricky Ricky's going away we're gonna have a going away party for him so he got you know his four uni friends and one of them was a German guy. He'd ran away from home pretty young. He's going, oh, we've got to check. Whatever you got, we've got to look at your stuff, you know. You've got to have the right stuff. So went through all my clothes. Oh, you've got too many clothes. So that auction. And they bought all my clothes off me, auctioned off my clothes. Told me about, the, you know, use a newspaper in your sleeping bag for extra warmth and give a few tricks to the trade. And I had about, I think I had about 60 bucks, $65, which was a fair bit. And yeah, next morning took off from St Kilda, started hitchhiking out of St Kilda and back up to Malacuta and yeah, that's it pretty well has been my home ever since. And so when you arrived in Malacuta, you, you arrived to your brother? Yeah, I went to my big brother, like, yeah, he'd come to the rescue, you know, when saw him, he was like, what the fuck are you doing here? Is this the one that's the lighthouse keeper now? This is the one who's the lighthouse keeper awesome. now. Yeah. So I rocked up there, he's like, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm going to run away from home, you know, and he's like, well, you can't stay here. And I'm like, well, all right. And he's, he was just married. He'd only just married his wife yeah. and they had this pretty cool house and they were like, so he said, oh, there's a caravan down there on the block, you know, if you want to go and stay there, it's up to you, but he goes, you're not staying here. And I was like, all right, no worries. So they gave me a few pots and pans and off I went and went and shacked up in this little old plywood caravan no electricity no water nothing just just a place to sleep and that was it and uh and so what was your first job with Malacuta? I think one of my first jobs my brother was a plumber so I used to do a little bit of labouring you know learnt been digging holes since I was like you know 10-12 years old with my dad helping him so used to do a bit of digging with my brother then worked in a takeaway food shop over summer because it was i'd run away just before summer so working in takeaway just cutting potatoes and selling fish and chips and washing dishes you know meeting lots of people well i'd always gone to malacuta for christmas every holiday so there's a people you know people when they hear malacuta they go there every year it becomes like this you know you're your blood. second home you know and people I think you'll find heaps of people have awesome relationships with Malacuta have gone there all their childhoods and grow up there and then bring their families there and then some move there and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's got that yeah it's a sort of pretty good place like that it's quite you know nurturing it's, and I think that's where my real love of the ocean developed you know just being that kid there and so the ocean felt like it always was very nurturing to me and sort of saving me you know saving me from a life life in the hills 
And you had a surfboard? I can't remember if I was probably borrowing my brother's boards. I remember one of my brother's mates coming and get me one time and he said, oh, you know, grab your brother's, we'll grab one of your brother's boards. He wanted to drag me out for this surf. And he dragged me out and I just got pounded, like washed in, nearly drowned. And I had my brother's board and I was stuck on this section of Bastion Point. There was no track and I tried to climb this cliff and I had my brother's board hanging by his leg rope, just straight off my ankle, <laughs> trying to climb up this cliff, scratching his beautiful surfboard. It was just, I don't think I was allowed to touch any of his boards after that for quite a while. <laughs> but it was just all long, you know, long old single fins back then, you know. Yeah. So I can't. And so that that is it. That point that you're telling me about. Yeah, that, Bastion Point. Yeah. yeah, it's just little beach breaks. You and know. That was great. Well, there was a year, a time in that when we were young where it was sanded up for quite a few years. It was really good sand set up on the point and then disappeared for 20, 30 years. Just disappeared? Yeah, it's pretty... Because the point's near where the river entrance comes out, it moves up and down the beach. It's, the sort of sand movement there is really quite dynamic and it's got the estuary of Malakuta Lakes. So depending on the rainfalls, droughts, storms, systems, the years, the seasons, it's, yeah, yeah. it's continually moving. It's sort of gone into a tendency nowadays with lower rainfalls of being blocked quite often. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a dynamic. And so uh, around this start of the falling in love, what was your first job on the water? My first job was working for a guy called Mike the Yank. He was this, my friend's dad, and he was an ab diver, needed a decky. So, yeah, out with him, 15 years old, working on a bike. This guy, Mike, was a ex-American. He was a Coast Guard diver. He'd been a Hells Angel when he was young. He'd uh, moved out to Australia. He lived in Eden, got a New South Wales AB licence, then a VCAB licence. Yeah, and just started working with him. It was the old days. It was He had a, the first boat we were in was an 18-foot shark cat. And it was back then you used to just put the anchor in, the diver would go down and just swim around the boat and, you know, get the day's catch just swimming around the boat. Pretty sort of different... Um, diving method to what they use now so you didn't have to drive the boat or anything like that so so now just to clarify you you sort of drift well it? nowadays because the resources just been fished down and the you know the stocks aren't as fully abundant the divers tend to the boat driver follows the diver along so you work what they call working live so the diver's swimming along the boat's not anchored to the bottom the deck is driving the boat and cleaning the abs and tending the hose and fucking that sounds stressful it can be pretty stressful it's good when the conditions are good it's pretty easy but you know when it starts getting rough and shitty it, it can be real stressful you know for the Real stressful for the decky. Stressful for the diver if you've got a shit decky. Well, I mean, stressful for the decky, like having to do two things at once. Well, they've got to molt. Yeah, you've got to do a few things. You've got to drive the boat. You've got to manage the hose. you got to, in New South Wales, you've got to count all the abs. You've got to put them in boxes. You've got to size them, grade them. So, yeah, there's a fair bit going on. You earn your money. It's, the decking works sort of pretty good good pay, but, yeah, you, you can work for it if it's really shit. If you've got a diver like... As the market forces change, you know, before they always dive when the weather was really good, just pick your days, no swell. But and say like this year is an example of a year of COVID in, in Malacuta. 
the co-op burnt down in the bushfires up there, so they ha- can't handle the pro- the processing of the fish, so they reduced... The co-op is where they, everyone... The co-op where everyone sells their abs okay. in Mallacoota. So they can't handle as much fish. So now guys are going, all right, we're open for four days. You've got a limit of 150 kilos, smaller weights. So guys are working shittier conditions more often. So Is that dangerous? Am I putting them at danger or is it just annoying? Um, well, it's anytime you go out when the conditions aren't perfect, you're comp- compounding the chances of something going wrong, like diving, safe diving is all about risk mitigation. It's about identifying, you know, what your risk factors are and then mitigating, you know, through actions. So if you're going to go work rough weather and you've got a green decky and some guys not very experienced, well, yeah, it's, you're increasing your danger. But, you know, a lot of the guys up there, real experienced deckies, work a lot of shit weather. It's shitty. It's worse for the decky than the diver because on the bottom, you know, unless it's real swelly. But uh, it's usually just harder on the decky, not too much harder for the diver. Mm. Uh, so you're 15 and... Uh and and so you weren't doing the drift you're just poaching yeah no just boat. anchor deckies back then yeah that was just the standard yeah that sounds a bit more relaxing it's a bit more yeah heaps speed. more relaxing yeah. just pulling in bags like the diver would pop up bag would pop up you'd have to pull the hose in drag that they'd never swim they'd just hang onto the bag and you just pull them back <laughs> then you hook the bag onto winch wind it up drop it into boxes size them yeah it was heaps cruising Mike the Yank you know he wasn't one of the record breakers he was just real real nice guy he was just a cruiser Mike the Yank how did he find himself in Malakuta? I don't know how he got to Malakuta. Got no idea what Mike's history. He's dead now, so we can't ask him. But I knew he was in Eden. Had this beautiful wife, Tanny. She was American, part Cherokee. She's she's still alive in Eden. Still friends with her and her, and her family. But yeah, I don't know how Mike. I think you know the ab industry was just starting. It was this new thing. You could just go there and make money. You just had to have a boat bit of gumption you know they didn't scuba was all new they didn't know about decompression guys were getting hideously bent up all the time guys were dying in the depth chamber really like a lot of people you knew oh well one of the first places where i lived when i was young like before i was 18 it was at a the unit of a guy called eddie waru one of the ab divers um, was he in that book that you gave me? Yeah, he was in the book, Eddie Waru. Yeah, he died. He died. He was one of the... Um, I can remember him dying. He got a bad case of the Benz. He was a big guy. He was 20 stone Maori, super classic Maori, super friendly, just love hungies and playing guitar and singing. And, yeah, he had a, some sort of bend. I'm not sure if it was embolism or... And his decky, young guy, Yorkie, a guy I went to school with, he was his decky. He went into the chamber with him to, you know, to help with medical, you know. So if you don't have the bends and you go into the chamber, you can do that? Like- well, you can do that because you, what they do, the idea of the chamber is it pressurises you back to the depth of where you were. And which would have been because they probably didn't even wear dive gauges back in those days. So they probably wouldn't know exactly how deep they were or the average depth. You know, you're swimming over bombies and stuff and you go up and down pretty quick. If water's dirty, you sort of lose sort of perception. You can kind of tell the bottom changes once you get sort of deeper, the sort of weed and stuff that grows. But they wouldn't have known exactly. So they've probably gone, all right, he's probably been to 25, 30 metres. 
so they blow you back down to that depth so is that you're just it's just like you're diving to 30 meters and then they bring you back up super slowly so they slowly releasing the pressure the deco chamber is like a big long tin can or a big heavy metal vessel about 1.5 meters in diameter enough you know to lay a you know person down or get a couple person sitting there it's got two chambers like an airlock at the front yeah so they lock you in pressurize it blow you down and then yeah slowly bring you back up and then they they might repeat that those um they might repeat that schedule over a certain amount of time and the idea is that they're trying to recompress the bubbles that have expanded in your bloodstream and lodge somewhere in you and let them so if they compress again they can move out yeah 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 the idea is to squash them right back down to tiny bubbles but the problem is that when you're gassing off when you're coming back up and you're gassing off the nitrogen the nitrogen and the oxygen expand at different rates so the oxygen the nitrogen expands faster so the bubbles get trapped it can get trapped in your spinal cord it can get in your nervous system so you you guys get paralyzed you might get a you know spinal you might get a bubble in your neck that squeezes on your spine and you're paralyzed like that's happened you know Grand Shoreland he had a neck bend and was paralyzed couldn't move his arms ever again no well he was treated and come good but they were warned him like um, the, the type of bend he had, I think he'd done all the, he'd done everything right, but he had just a, an indiscriminate bubble, just something went wrong, gas something chambered, might have had nitrogen stored somewhere heaps. The more you dive, the more you continuously dive, your your red blood cells produce a a coating around them that stops the nitrogen bubbles sticking to them as much. So you're more at risk when you haven't been diving as much. And you say you've had a big long break, you've been on the pish, your body's a bit worn down, you've got a torn muscle somewhere, jump in, you go dive like you were diving when you've been diving all the time. Little bubble gets stuck, it gets stuck in the scar tissue and, you know, things go from there. So you can get just grady shoulders, you can get pulsating bends. Yeah, it's... Fucking full on. It is pretty full on. In those days, I didn't know what they were doing. So that was just... They were learning. They had the U.S. Navy dive tables. They didn't know a lot about oxygen decompression. They were just learning about breathing pure oxygen. You know, you got to be super careful doing that. Pure oxygen becomes toxic at about 60 feet, so it comes from a, a, a life-saving gas to a poisonous gas, and you'll have an oxy fit. Um, so what, why? What, so it's going down a hose or uh, in a tank? Well, it doesn't matter if it's in a tank or if it's hose. Once it's at a certain amount of bar- you know, barometric pressure, something in it changes. Changes the molecular Wasn't real good at school. I think we crossed that bit, so yeah. I can't really tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really tell you what the uh, yeah. chemistry is or yeah. the science. But I've met a guy when I was in um, Queensland. He was a, uh, you know, when, you, when you're a diver and you're learning, anytime you meet another diver, it's like meeting a surfer meeting, you meet some big wave legend you want to ask, you know, wow. Yeah. So I met this guy, he was a Navy clearance diver in Vietnam. I was like, oh, shit, you know, so we talk, what happened? And it turns out he was one of the first guys where they dove, discovered oxygen toxicity 
I'm not sure if they were doing testing or if it had a bend and they were blowing him back down in the chamber and they were blowing him down with pure oxygen in the chamber as the gas, not without nitrogen, yeah. so you're not taking up any more nitrogen. So you can gas off more nitrogen when you exhale. And they were blowing him down and all of a sudden he was getting to... 24 metres, 20, and he'd start having a fit. Next thing, he'd die. They'd blow him back up. They'd go in there. They'd resuscitated him. He'd come good. Then they're going, all right, better blow him back down. And I think they, I think he said they did it to him three times. They'd stopped him. They'd killed him by before they realised, like, hey, hang on. <laughs> this, is, this could be the oxygen. What's going on here? So they discovered this, yeah, oxy, oxygen toxicity with these Navy clearance divers. At 60 feet? Well, it's around 60 feet. The rule, I think it's around 60, but... It might affect different people at different stages. When we were pearl diving, we were breathing oxy at nine meters, which is you know just before the first atmosphere of pressure. So hold on, is this off a line or in a tank? No, this was off a line. So the pearl boats, you do the drift, you do a drift diving method. You're using your own um, hooker hose or dive hose, not wearing tanks. You're wearing a, a bailout bottle, a small emergency scuba tank. And the oxygen comes down a dedicated line and the divers all come to the middle line and at nine metres you're slowly, you know, you're coming up nice and slow and then you get to the decompression stop, which is the oxy rig, and it had three oxy regulators there, one for each diver, and you'd all sit there and do the oxy together. And that was... Coming up? Well, you'd get to nine metres and you'd stop at nine metres. This oxy hose couldn't go any deeper than 10 metres. So you couldn't. So, And this is something that they learnt in Broome as well. Originally, because they started using oxy, oxy was, is the great um, scrubber of nitrogen out of your blood. So really healthy to do. So what they, they learnt, um, this oxy decompression method. So if you're, you, you pretty well halve your decompression time by using oxy. So if you've got to do 30 minutes of deco on just air, on compressed air, if you do it on oxy, you only have to do 15 minutes. So it changes the the dynamic of, of the breathing. So they used to have it that each diver's hose would just, they'd just switch, they'd have a manifold and they'd just switch the oxy over and you'd get oxy down your diving hose. And I, I was on the, on the, or worked with this guy, a guy called, Gary, I can't remember his last name, a skipper. Is this in Pearls? This is in Pearls in Broome. Yeah. And he was the skipper of the boat when this incident happened. And the guy, so you've got a big boom out each side of the boat. You've got three divers on each side. Each person has their own line. You've got a fixed position inside, middle and outside. So the outside diver had got a bend. Um, at night back then, they used to do at night deco. So if you were in the boat at night, you can feel a bend coming on. You can you get a, something in your shoulder, your headache, paralyzing symptoms. You go and start the compressor up or you turn the oxy on and you go get in the water and you go back down to that depth. And in you the middle of the night? In the middle of the night. Do you tell someone? Well, normally they reckon, yeah, well, you tell because the compressor's going, there's a bit of action, yeah. someone's sort of checking on you. So they reckon they used to hear it all the time. You'd hear bur, 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 at night, you know, some oh yeah, someone's got a bend over there, you know, compressors firing up. So this guy's gone down. He's the outside diver. He's grabbed the inside diver's line because he's on the inside. He's switched it over to oxy, 
gone to work, or, you know, gone down to the bottom, done his deco, come up, packed it all up, gone to bed, didn't switch the oxymanifold back over. So the next morning, the crew go to work, diver jumps in, goes down, has a hits the bottom. He's breathing pure oxy. You can't tell. Has an oxy fit, passes out and died. And yeah, they had to bring that guy. They pulled him. And his name was Rick. When I got to Broome, the last three divers that had died, oh, the last two divers' names that had died were all Richard. And I just had this real paranoia. <laughs> Fuck, I was going to be the third Rick because I've I've got a tendency to have a few fuck-ups here and there. So, yeah, it was always in the back of my mind. I didn't want to be the number three Rick. And you were, oh, you were on board with... When? Oh, no, I wasn't on board. I worked with the skipper. Same skipper. Who, yeah. The skipper who was on that boat. He told, yeah, he told us that story firsthand. So, yeah, there's all this trial and learning, you know, in the old days about learning about the Oxy and they've... You know, they found out by people dying. That's that's how it worked. But the pearling industry in particular... Was this in the 70s? When was this? No. Oh, that accident, that was probably 80s or 90s. Yeah. When they were just... So Broom actually put a lot of money and time into developing their own decompression tables. And they're the most radical dive tables in the world. Like you show the pearl diving table to a dive instructor, someone who just does diving or commercial divers, all these, you know, properly regulated divers, and they just go, oh, you're fucking crazy. That's just, you know, you can't do it. It's just the tables are amazing. But they spend years developing their tables. So the the pearling, pearling is an incredible history going right back to the early, you know, 1850s or you know, pearls have been a sought after forever. They used to get them out of the Middle East, the Red Sea. They were like a Baroque pearl. Then the Japanese developed the system of seeding the pearl where they put the little bead in there that grows the round pearls. And then back in the day, they were the gun divers too when they started hard hat diving. The Japanese, yeah, so the big solid hard hat and a blow up suit. And so they were blowing, like, pressurising air into a big suit. Yeah. So they didn't have a regulator, a regulator you know, a second-stage reg. So there's this huge, massive history of diving, like, a couple of hundred years of tradition, and a lot of the pearling was really about tradition. So they reckoned for years that the only guys capable of doing this diving were Asians, so the most of the divers were Malay, Kupangers, um, TI, Thursday Island, and Japanese divers, Kanakas, you know, just South Pacific, South Islanders. I don't know if they were just suited to it or they just died from being island people all their lives or I'm not sure how why they were cho- the chosen ones, but they were. And then in a part of Australia's white Australia policy in the 1950s, and they were trying to stop Asians and stuff from migrating to Australia, they came up with this idea that, oh, no, we have to have white divers. We don't want to have Asian divers anymore. So they did this um, experiment. They sent out, I think, 12 british navy divers and so these guys were the cream of the crop from britain hard hat divers and there's a really good book called um white divers of broom and it's uh, this history story about this when they came up this white this white australia policy no more japanese divers 
all the pearl owners up there that were making all the money with the Jap divers and the you know the the Asian divers. They wanted to keep the Asians because they worked for less, worked harder, better, experienced. But they said, all right, we'll get these white divers out and and yeah, we'll put them up against and see how they go. And I think within the first year, they'd killed about six or eight of them. Killed them? Oh, killed them dead, man. Killed them dead? Oh, yeah. It's pretty dangerous. And they they dove deep back then and they didn't understand the table. So they did the same method. They had this drift diving, so they'd lower the diver down on a hose. They had the compressors were hand-driven, so you'd have two islanders on the boat actually operating a big flywheel pump that was pumping the air down to the diver. And the diver would go along. He's got a big hard hat. I don't know if you ever picked one up. They're friggin' heavy. So you have a big hard hat, then you have a big lead corslet that goes around your neck the the canvas suit is bolted to that neck piece like with big wing nut rings then the idea is that you blow that much air into the suit that you have to wear giant lead shoes so you don't blow off off the bottom so you can't swim you're literally hanging off your dive hose so the or the umbilical cord they used to have then so they'd have this big thick heavy cord and then you'd have a signal rope and then a a boom sat out where the the decky would feed out your hose and the guys would just sort of bounce along the bottom so you have to get your on the moon it was just like being on the moon so they'd have to have the right amount of air in their suit that they could just bounce along but one of the guys that i dive with up there who dived hard hat he reckons you can't bend over to pick up a pearl because if you put your head forward, your head will just fall to the ground and you're stuck. You can't. Next thing you start getting dragged along because the boat's moving because it's just all those heaps of current up there. So they were killing, in the hard hat days, they were killing. I went to the Pearl Divers Cemetery in Thursday Island and I think there was like 10,000 10,000 dead divers in there, man. Japanese, just these big memorials, Japanese divers, islanders. They reckon there's a spot up there in the Torres Straits called the Denali Deeps, and over 900 divers had died just in the Denali Deeps. I think it was maybe 40 fathoms, like 240 feet deep. And these, all for pearl. All for pearl. So these guys were just going down in hard hats. Down into 240 metres, you got these cross currents, you got these giant black corals, their hose would get hooked up. There's just, oh, there's just a thousand things that can go wrong in those days. Those are just the biggest, ballsiest dudes ever. And then they were just getting bent, like these Japanese, these Japanese guys. So they reckon the, they used to have this theory that boiling, really hot boiling water relieve the bends so these guys would come up bends from their dives and then they would get in these baths of fucking the hottest water that they could stand and it would fucking they'd get covered in third degree burns and then they'd suffer all the skin would fall off and they're in the tropics and brooms and they're all dying of ulcerated sores and Another thing was they had to put catheters in them all the time because they couldn't piss. It was like this big thing, you couldn't piss. And these crew were getting urinary tract infections that were killing them from using unsanitized catheters going up the eye, you know. Why couldn't they piss? 
because it's just one of the symptoms of the bends. So the bends affects you. There's all different types of bends, depending if it's a bend because you've been in the water too long and you've taken up too much nitrogen or you've ascended too quickly and a bubbles expand or an embolism. There's all these different medical types of bending, you know, there's all, you know, they manifest in all sort of different ways yeah, yeah. depending on the the rate of the ascent or that kind of thing. So, you know, they have... So if you wanted back then, if you wanted to be a diver, so you'd be a tri diver, you'd be the second guy, you'd be the decky, you'd dress the diver, you'd help him, you'd probably help him deco at the end of the day. So if the diver during the trip died, which happened all the time, sometimes they'd come up too quick, they came off the bottom, sometimes they would explode inside the inside these suits. And they would take the lid off, they would wash the suit out, and they'd give it to the guy and go, okay, looks like you got to start. And that was it. You were on, <laughs> you were on in the dead guy's suit. Clear his up. So and you go from decky to He went dive. from decky to diver when someone died. Yeah, that was your position opening. And is this what happened for you? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this is... So this is the age. So, yeah, so, you know, getting back to, you know, the Japanese guys, there was a white divers experiment. They killed them off a few by accidents. A few just ran away, just went, no, nah, this is too gnarly. Maybe one or two adapted, but it was pretty well deemed unsuccessful. And they made a special clause in the white Australia policy that they were allowed to employ Asians in the pearling industry. So there's, a, you know, there's all this amazing history in Broome of the... Um, the you know, the Aboriginal Kupanga and Japanese mix. It's like a... You say Aboriginal? Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, because the, the Japanese weren't allowed to mix with the whites, so they mixed with the Aboriginals, you know, the Kupangs and all that, you know. It's fairly fairly racist place, you know. It's steeped in racism, the whole industry and stuff. Well, I just remember I had this book on sharks as a kid and there was a picture in the start that started off, you know, it was linear through time and there was an Aboriginal pearl diver with a scar all the way around his neck and cheap yeah shark tiger shark necklace yes exactly yeah and i never like it was a black and white picture that i just was always burned into my brain and it was from up there yeah yeah so yeah you know it's real so that didn't really work with the with the white guys so the japanese were always in charge of the industry and the diving side of it and then as the abalone industry started and scuba started, there started being some inroads. So there was actually a guy, some Malacuta ab divers, towed their boats over and they took the compressor... All the way to fucking... All the way Darwin. to Broome, man. Broome. Like, all, a, a, the diametrically opposed opposite of Malacuta, yeah. Yes. So <laughs> this is what these guys were doing back in those days. I was thinking petrol cost you... And they were just going wherever the venture is. They're like sea hippies, you know, just traveling around, just charging around the country, any diving opportunity. Like there's all sorts of divers that have been in Mallacoota and ended up in Tassie or South Australia or WA or the guys that went to Broome, you know, guys up in the territory. Yeah, so there's a couple of, you know, Victorian ab divers went over there. They introduced this hooker, this different method. Um, you know, opposed to the hard hat. Yeah. And then that started making the opportunities for the, you know, Australian divers and those guys to start sort of filling the voids as the industry was growing. So the early days of the industry, they just did what you call 
commie bashing where they just pick up the large really big pearl shell the big old mother of pearl and in them you were trying to find natural pearls pearls that occurred naturally so they would just open thousands and thousands of pearls just the boat would be just piling up pearl shell they'd keep the shell for making jewelry buttons combs that kind of stuff and then through the search you know through opening up every per- every animal they were looking for the for pearls so to find a natural perfectly round pearl is like yeah super super like a rare necklace, like kind of pearl or an earring one well they're all different shapes so depending on the type of shape there's a baroque there's naturals i think there's five sort of shape types and the baroque are the original they're the uh, the natural pearl they're a bit odd shape but you know back then to find perfectly round pearls was was super rare yeah, and then they just developed their industry through using through divers. Then they had all this history of, you know, the diving methods, what the Jap guys did, their dive times. So they got this, you know, they're culminating all this information. Then they got a doctor in there and they had a deco chamber and they started doing these dive tables. And then in the off season when the when the pearl is in the cyclone season when they weren't diving the pearlers could you go get a job and you worked at the deco chamber with these doctors and they would put you down and they tried decompressing you with these different gas ratios and different dive times and they manipulated the dive tables to suit the drifting style where they would drift for 40 minutes through a patch and then they bring all the do- decompress chuck the divers on the boat drive back up into the drift start of the drift position you know, so you'd have a surface interval and then do the dive again. Same stretch. And do the same stretch, yeah. So, that you know, that's the, that's the pearl diving method is they find a patch of ground and then you sort of lawn mow it, just go back and forth and just drift over it with your divers and picking up all the shell. Yeah, and that's how... So you, you'd done that style of diving. Yeah, I've been drift diving, did a couple, nearly three years over there in Broome. And so when you got your head down, you're looking for pearls, are you actually, do you ever look up and go, oh, fuck, that's pretty pretty? Like, see shit going by, or are you busy, well, just too busy? No, you're just too busy. When I first got there, the boat that I worked on, I worked for a company, Arrow Pearls, and the it was, they employed older guys. It was a smaller company, um, they had a range of age groups, whereas Pass Bailey is the big, you know, the famous pearl company. They wanted divers of a, a younger age group just because of, of the danger of the dive, you know, harder on the body. But Arrow Pearls is one of the companies that still had quite a few of the older, more experienced divers. So I jumped on with this crew and there was this legend guy there, Matt Murray. He was like the, he was the pearl diving legend. So he was sort of, you know, a mentor and a teacher and sort of showing the ropes what was going on. And he very first said to me, we were heading up to the, this place, the Lassipedes Channel, and everyone was talking, they were calling it Shark Alley, you know. And I was like, oh, fuck Shark Alley. And they're oh, yeah, Tiger Shark's up here, man. You know, they're all going on about it. And I said to Matt, I go, oh, what do we do if, we, if you see a shark? He goes, if you see a shark, you get a fucking kick in the ass. If you see a shark, you're not looking for pearl shell. If you're looking for pearl shell, you won't see a shark. You got it? <laughs> yeah, 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 no worries, man. <laughs> so, yeah, the standard answer nowadays when people say, oh, do you see many sharks? I go, well, I don't look for them. 
you know so that's the idea so to to really the skill of pearl diving the pearl shell is very cryptic it's really hard to see on the bottom the real skill of the real gun divers had a really good eye picking them out so you got this low benefic rubbly corally sort of bottom there's a few different types a heap of different ground we were i did a lot of my work up the lassipes so it's this um, yeah, coralline rubble along the bottom with sea whips and a few features, and but low, mostly low, quite flat, undulating, sandy, corally gutters. And the pearl shell can be laying in all directions, doesn't sit a particular way, not like an ab or something that just sticks down. So do you have to trail someone while you're learning to get your eye in? Or? No, well, you just got to go and get your eye in. It was just like... I, everyone that I'd talk to, I was always, you know, grilling them. What do you, you know, information? What do you see? How do you do it? What do you look for? You know, I've spotted abs. Done it by that stage. I'd, you know, done aquarium fish for a few years. Done um, abalone, sea urchins. So you know, you learn. Yeah, you get your eye. You get to seeing stuff. But the pearl shell was really hard to see sometimes you just see a little bit of straight edge or a corner or they had these particular little fingers that grow along the edge of the along the edge of the shell or if the shell is looking towards you it's got an orange mouth so that orange was quite an unusual color so you could sometimes yeah so like looking into the when its mouth is open and then there's all this stuff where you know other guys will tell you stuff oh, if you're breathing too hard you'll scare them and everything you don't really realize but everything in the ocean is super sensitive to vibration and movement so just breathing hard or banging or like when you grab them out you know you grab them out of the bottom and you knock and bang stuff the the pearl shell will close up and they just like disappears the real there was a real the real skill of pearl diving sensitivity was visual sent you know visually being able to spot them and be constantly moving and just being totally focused so you're getting towed along like you have a boom six meter boom sticks out each side of the boat because i was the newest diver i was stuck in between matt murray and another guy and they were the two guns so you got two good guys behind you they're telling you whatever bullshit they can so they get a bigger quota so they get bigger quota so you, the boat goes to sea for the skull for the for the pearl season it's got a thirty thousand shell quota and whoever gets what that's how it goes so you've got five or six trips and you're doing 10 days of diving each trip and you just got to pick up as many shell as you can each dive we're doing about 10 dives a day four to ten oh you know six to ten dives a day depending on the normally around eight to ten dives starting right on the crack of daylight and there's a scoreboard so you catch you got your individual bag you shoot your bag up at the edge of the dive you get up do your oxy deco stop and you come out and as soon as you come up on the deck there's a scoreboard with everyone's scores who got what for that dive and so there's a running tally you know so as soon as you get up you look at they have the whole thing is driven by competition because they want to catch the quicker the boat catches the the pearls the less money it costs you know to run it right you know the pearl yeah, boat's got six it's got six yeah. divers got three dump divers it's got three deckies a skipper and a cook so it's a big floating operation you're out of sea for 10 12 days 
insane food so they're just pushing you it's just go 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 so you get out everyone you just everyone's and because you be breathing oxy you're all pumped up from the oxy everyone comes out you're all gearing up it's 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 great it was really awesome dive it's super competitive super driven just hard work just like going for it it was good and making good bank yeah well at the start you know when you're learning you're not making so good money you know it's it's just it's a real learning phase you're picking up the wrong size shells so not only do you have to start seeing them but you have to learn to pick up the right size if you're picking up the wrong size you're just putting shit in your bag that you're handling and you know unloading and loading your bag takes time so it's really about developing a lot of efficiencies in your actions you know you really just super good eyes super good at reading like Matt Murray was telling me he could just look at a pearl and he could see how far its mouth was open and know if it was too big or not so instead of swimming over to grab something and then going oh it's no good he could just look you know and they had all these things you know where there's one there's three you might not see might only see one but they always land in little groups you know when the spat lands they just, just the way they are you know so there was all these things like that and then there was like Matt Murray used to always wear they all had really good these Jap Yamamoto rubber wetsuits super soft super comfy like you're in this wetsuit for 10-12 hours a day 10 days in a row pissing in it the whole lot just living in your wetsuit so they got these really good custom-made Japanese rubber. Super careful to put them on. No, just double rubber, both sides, double smooth. Oh, wow. So, and then Maddie would always wear a bright T-shirt over the top of all his stuff. And I was like, what the fuck, did, what, what are you wearing then? He goes, because it catches your eye. And because what happens, when you, you're getting towed along, you're holding onto a rope, and the idea is that you just have to be scanning like a radar, just looking back, scanning. And the idea is that you look over and something catches your eye, you look up, and that second you look up is a couple of seconds that you're not looking at the bottom, and you're not looking at the bottom, then you're missing pearl shell, you know. So it was all this, you know... Psychological. psychological warfare was this full-on psychological warfare this other guy Simo on the other side of me I looked over to him and he's he's towing and I can see he's looking towards me I know there's a pearl shell so you let go of the rope and you're letting the rope go through your hands and I'm stopped I'm on my knees and I'm looking around me trying to see where this shell is and he's swimming he's swimming towards me so I know there's a pearl shell there but I can't see it I can't see it. I'm looking, I'm fucking looking, and he gets right to me, and he points to his watch. He points to his watch. So I look at my watch. As soon as I look at my watch, he just <laughs> leans forward and grabs his shell, grabs onto his rope, and just gets towed off. I'm just in there like, going, fuck. Like, Simo was a good dude. He'd always steal your shell, but he'd do it in a really nice way. So you sort of have this rule. he just fuck with you. he just fuck with you, you know. Yeah. Simo was real good. He was a good dude, man. So... He, you have the rule that you can swim up to a person's line, up to their rope, but you can't reach under their rope. That's that's crossing the line. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> but in the middle, you've got the two guns on both sides. They're heaps active. So when I first started, they said to me, oh, just go right down the back of your rope. Just go right down the back and just get out of everyone's way. So I'm down the back and swimming along by, yeah, no one hassling me here. And you come along and there'd be a little puffs of dust, you know, you'd come along a little puff stuff like right in your ground. 
and this other the other guy this Adrian this guy said to me he goes Rick what, what, what are you doing like I'm getting three four five shallow dive these guys are getting 30 50 shallow <laughs> he's going what, what, what are you doing I said oh, I'm just hanging down the back you know Marnie told me hang down the back I think you better move up the front. <laughs> and then it sort of clicked to me like, oh, yeah. And then it was like, you never leave the front. Like as soon, anytime, as soon as you go down your rope at any time, you just swim and work your way back up and you get forward, you know. Because you're, lying, you know, you're in a line, three guys. Yeah. So, and then the, the other... Fuck, they must have been grinning when you were just hanging Oh, back. they were just... Yeah. And they do it every time. They, no one says anything. Everyone's just chuckling away. You know, one of the other guys said to me, he goes, well, you're really going to have to start lifting your going." And I, at this stage, I was like an ab diver from... I'd come as an ab diver, an experienced diver. So, and there was a fair bit of fucking... Yeah. You know, they don't particularly like East Coast Australians full stop. And then an ab diver had already like moved in on their job and displacing young guys who were coming through from getting their jobs and stuff. Because of the competition thing, that's how they like to breed it. You know, the managers like to have guys that are all being competitive. Everyone's fishing harder. Everyone's making more money. The boat's making money, you know, so... Has you ever seen any blues? I, I got one. I had a guy, I managed to put a guy's nose right out of joint, this guy, Folksy. And he ended up, and I got out of... I got out of place with the skipper as well, so I had the skipper and the head diver against me. Luckily, Matt Murray should have been the head diver on this boat, but this the skipper, the Tucker fucker, he decided he was going to take Folksy on because he was decided he wanted to really grieve on me. So Matt Murray and I were on the same side, but Matt was a bit of an ally because he was pissed off that he didn't he should have been the head diver, and this guy Folksy was made the head diver. Folksy took a real did shine to me man and made it his life's mission to just do what he can what did you do to him Rick I didn't really particularly do anything I asked him a couple of times what was going on and one time it was he just didn't like ab divers another time he was I just don't have a problem with you but you know I don't like your face yeah and this guy Foxy he was fucking widely renowned as the toughest guy in Western Australia he was one tough dude man and one of the, this Adrian who was a head diver at the time and uh, Folksy the year before had lost his job to a West Australian ab diver who was a friend of the owners and he was a gun spearo and he'd come up and Folksy was real crazy unit and he was giving the skipper too much shit and he got sacked and he got replaced with a WA, WA ab diver so all of a sudden he saw me as this like this other ab diver come along so he just, yeah, decided to... He decided to just fucking go hard on me. So it just became this real thing. And it came to the point, this psychological game. We would get on the boat. You'd say, you, you dive all day. You fuck worked hard. You eat insane. You're sitting around the deck that night. Everyone's talking. You're hanging shit on everyone. And then folks, you'd be going, geez, imagine... Imagine if you were a fuckwit that come from the other side of Australia and he was on a boat with every cunt hated him, like really hated him. Imagine that, you'd have to be a real fuckwit, wouldn't ya? Wouldn't ya? Just looking at me, wouldn't ya? And all the other crew is sort of like, well, you know, you know, the young guys I got on with, well, Matt Murray was just sort of rolling his eyebrows, you know. Tucker fucker, the skipper, he thought it was great. He'd sort of G it up and it was just this 
Just one, yeah. He wanted, he wanted you to say something. He wanted me to say something. Then at one stage, I was going to burr up, and this guy, Adrian, go, Rick, do not fight this guy. He will fucking kill you. We don't care what you've done in the past. Folksy is a weapon, like... And I was like, no, and they're just like, no, Rick. And, and I inquired and heard some stories, and this guy, Folksy, was probably one of the toughest diver guys I'd heard of. So when you're getting towed along the bottom you can come across these big dust patches like you come along this and there'll be a stingray feeding on the bottom big fucking stingrays and the main food of tiger sharks are stingrays so they attack tiger so folksy like normally when you see a cloud of dust like that you can just swim up and go up over it or you can go around it how do you get these little clouds of dust Oh, like, you know, just as big as this room, like a big cloud. You might have to swim up 10, 15 metres, you know. Some animals just sitting there shoveling through the bottom, you know, ploughing up the bottom, eating stuff. So folks, he just, he doesn't go up and over it. He just goes through. Anyway, he just has this collision with this stingray. This stingray thinks he's a tiger shark attacking him. So a stingray's wrapped its fins completely around him so it's lifted its fins right up it's bear hugged him and then with its tail because stingrays use their tail like a scorpion and if you look at a stingray's tail you'll see that the barb is designed to actually come forward and point so when it comes forward like a scorpion's tail and it started spearing folksy in the fucking head in his forehead with his spine and they reckon folksy smashed through this thing had this big battle with his stingray he's come up he had a broken off fucking stingray barb in his forehead and they've pulled it out and he fucking kept diving he, he was literally fucking so tough this dude man there was another story uh, Irigangi jellyfish, those super deadly jellyfish, is tiny little jelly, super deadly. All the boats carry full um, Royal Flying Doctor medical kits. We all got trained in how to administer pethidine and morphine. The pain is f- unbelievable. They kill you. Yeah. They'll reduce the toughest mother you've ever seen to crying tears. Folks, he got done on the lip on about dive number three. It was the last day of the trip. I wasn't there. This is what I've been told. So he got done on the lip. Comes the lip starts swelling up. He comes up. He's like, fuck, fuck. You know, how many more to go? Yeah, right. So he's just hanging in there. I think by dive number seven, he's going right. Have that pethidine, <laughs> fucking ready. Like, and then by he didn't even deco on his last dive. Last dive, he's supposed to do like this huge deco. He just did five minutes of oxy. Came up. They reckon they give him a double whack. And then he just fucking wrote it out, went home, didn't even go to hospital. Like, he was just, yeah, the folksy story was, yeah, like, don't, don't fuck with folksy. So, Is he still alive? I don't know. What's happened to folksy? I don't know what happened. He was from Lancelin in WA. That's all I know. I wasn't real ba- best mates yeah, with yeah. him. Yeah, you're not mates on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, not mates on Facebook. <laughs> and he was just that stocky, heavy little build. He was bald and tough. He just... He was a tough dude. I wish I wish he had a fucking loved me, you know. He was a good he was yeah. a, a legend. He was definitely a legend of the industry. So anyway, yeah, this thing developed between me and folks, and I was diving right next to him. He, he was next to me, so there would be just this fucking skullduggery going on with folks of him trying to fuck me over. So at the start, you know, he's all he had to do was just beat me with his shell count. 
but it's the expectation of the head diver to be the best diver on the boat. They actually carry a uh, Morse code signal with them, a little buzzer signal. Only the head diver. Only the head diver. And he can he drives the boat from underwater. So he can speed the boat up, slow it down. He can lift your weights because, you, you know, each diver has a big independent weight that your rope hangs off that you're getting towed along by. So he can adjust your weights. You can slow the boat down, speed it up. You can turn the boat around. You can end the dive. Wow. You can do all this all stuff. All Morse code. All with these Morse code signals. This is going to be pretty onto it. Yeah, yeah. So head divers, so they've got to be, have their Morse signals sorted. They've got to be catching more fish than everyone because that's why they head diver. And they get normally get a 50 cents for every shell that comes on the boat. Oh, tax off everyone. Yeah, they get a tax off everyone. So it's their they're supposed to make the boat fish like they're the skipper when the when when you're diving yeah so you know, f- you know folks he had that but he started working so hard on trying to fuck me over that it started affecting his own catch rate and at this stage i oh this is the great this is my great maneuver i didn't have glasses i didn't have um glasses in my dive mask so i did one trip no um, no glasses, you know, dive mask with glasses. Second trip, my dive mask arrived. Fucking bang. Second dive, I won. I was the top diver on the whole fucking... Came up, oh, man, never been so pumped in me life. Fucking rigged number one, just like, ew. Get out, all the boys, the young guys are all stoked for me. Everyone's pumped, you know. Skipper's spewing, the tucker fucker's spewing. Folksy, fucking folksy was furious. I could just see him just like, just fucking growing at me. So I was like, yeah, bang, then second dive. And then he just got so focused. Like, all of a sudden, my weight would just start going up, which means that you're getting lifted off the bottom and you've got to go right down the back of the rope. So he'd be there. He'd just start, he'd just send my weight up. Like, what the fuck? He just like, oh, fuck. Just doing all this stuff to fuck me over. He was just, he was just being a motherfucker. And then it was just this psychological game. So... The the real key to the diving is this really regimented. You get up in the morning, you know, you get up at 4.30, sitting on there, you're putting Vaseline on, you're putting bandages over all your rub-throughs, you know, the back of your knees, under your arms from pulling up and down the rope in a heavy suit. you got just holes worn in your chafe, Vaseline, putting plasters over it, like is 40 minutes of just, you know, a cleaning up all your wounds you're ulcerating as well, well you have to this you had to be super on top of anything like a little yeah. toenail nick you know they'd turn infected and fuck your foot you couldn't swim it was just real little things and this is where I ended up out doing like the younger guys were better and stronger but I had more endurance and I was better at managing my body and I I kept consistently you know I kept consistently that average yeah. where the young guys had burst they'd go good for a day then they'd clap out the next day and they'd come back the day after that but I just sort of maintained this um, consistency you know and just being a bit more methodical and having my gear a bit more sorted really having having your gear together and it's just 
Get up, bang. First thing, all right. Divers in, five minutes. Comes over the loudspeaker. So skipper's up. They're lining up the drift. All the gear's going flat out. All the deckies are getting ready. There's weights and ropes. And the way the divers line up, when you go and grab your hose, because you've got three guys going out one side, you have to go out in the right sequence. Otherwise, the hose will tangle with the ropes and the down lines. It's like... So if you're not ready at five minutes to go, you can't come and jump in line and then try to clip in. They're like... Nah, fuck. You've got to be fully kitted standing at the door like at five minutes go, ready to go. So you get there and then you stand there. So you're all jostling, you're all pushing. Folks, he's behind me. Matt Murray, he's on the outside. So he's going first. And I, I forget about what this stage was. I think folks had nearly broken me. He'd been throwing my fucking clothes over the side. He'd been reading. He'd go out, he'd read my diary. Like I used to keep really full-on dive logs. Um, you know, every day's diving comments, you know, where we were, just, just kept a dive log and a diaries. And I'd be writing incidents, you know, and one of the deckies, they lost my bag, a whole bag, a whole dive's fuck, I don't know what they did. Anyway, I'd, in the thing, I'd call this chick a dopey bitch. <laughs> anyway, fucking folks has gone and got me diary and read this, read this extract from me diary where I'm paying this chick and she'd been one of me mates and all of a sudden she was off me and it was just this fucking psychological battle, you know, just continually, you know, just trying to break me. And finally, we're standing there at the door, just about to go in the water. And this was the art. The art is when, when you dive, the thought that comes to your head just before you go in, it's just all invading, you know. It just takes up your whole mind. If, if you've got something that you go down, you just can't get rid of it. It just seems to be just stuck in that area. So I'm standing. The last thought before you go Yeah, down. the last thought. It's like, you know, when you go for a surf and the last song you heard, no matter what. Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. Get it out. Yeah, it's just like yeah. that. It's just for some reason. I don't know if just what, how it locks in and why it does that. So I'm standing there with Folksy and I go, Folksy, I go, you know what? I fucking had it, man. I've had it. This is it. This is my last trip. I'm fucking going home after this. This is it. You've done me, Folksy. And I could just see his eyes just lit up and he's got this big grin on his face. And then I hear, bang, you know, the diver's in. And I go, and if you fucking believe that, you're fucking dreaming. <laughs> and I just <laughs> stuck me reg in and off I went and just like, yeah, fucking hell. Was that the dumbest thing I've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> so we get down the bottom, we're working away and you could just see folks, he just comes swimming over and he's just holding on to his rope, just holding on just looking over at me just not even working not even working just hanging there just looking at me and I've sort of looked over and caught his eye and sort of looked and gone back to work and look up and he's there he is still again just looking at me and I'm just like whoa fuck here we go so then and oh then there was a culmination and I was getting a little bit better I was getting had my shit together I seen more fish I was working anyway I was over near Matt Murray and we see this pearl up in front of us and the rule is whoever gets there first it's their it's their pearl and I used to wear this pissed the guys off a lot too is I used to wear really big spear fishing fins but the preferred fin over there was a short stubby like scuba fin so you could maneuver around more push off the bottom but I like my big flipper fins the big spearing fins I've always worn them and we're going forward good visibility Matt Murray and I are sort of equal we're a few metres apart we look up we can see this shell like this beautiful pearl shell sitting there so 
we're just both swimming at it flat out. I've got the bigger fins. As I've gone out, I've just rolled and dived and just grabbed this shell right in front of Matt. As I did it, I swam over and I pushed my line over the shell. So it he was... He can't come under it. Wow, so he can't come under. So, yeah, my biggest thing was I just pushed... I swam out, pushed the rope over to do this blockage grabbed the shell looked at him he just went fucking smack just punched me straight in the reg ripped my mask off Matt Murray Matt Murray your mate <laughs> mate Matt Murray <laughs> he just smashed me right in the reg with fucking smash cut my lip and then ripped my mask off and you have to wear these um, rubber Iraganji face mask that wraps right around your mask. So if your mask comes off, you've got to undo all this shit. It's a fucking nightmare. So I'm smashing the face, got can't see, I've had my mask ripped off, my regs, and he's like, when he's punched me, ripped that out, pulled on my fucking reg, ripped that out of my mouth. So I'm just there, you've got your rope under your arm, I'm just like, blood smacked in the face just, I just grab the rope I can't even see I'm just getting dragged along I'm holding on with one hand the other hand I'm trying to like get my rig in I'm not doing all this stuff and oh just this battle and I finally clear all my mask and stuff and I look and I look and here's Matt Murray he's just looking at me just giving me the diver's salute just looking back at me just like just the bird yeah, just giving me the finger going don't do that again, Ricky. And we never spoke about it. Never fucking said a thing about it. It was never mentioned. It was old mate... Um, Folksy. Well, Folksy. So then... Did he say it? I don't know. But what happened is when we do the deco stops, so you go up on the lines and you go on the deco, and we used to play Hangman. So what you do is you take a notepad, a few pages of a notepad, and you shove it up your wetsuit. And then when you get to the... The deco to the deco stop, you'd pull the pad out and you could write, or you had you know like those dive so underwater writing. Yeah, yeah, you get a, like a you know those lead hard lead pencils and like the either a notepad or a book or a a um a little diver scribe table you know and you yeah. could write and you'd play a hangman. The next so thing, essentially, so you'd think of the word and put the letters in the dots. Yeah, and you'd yeah. sit there play because you do all the noose. Yeah, because yeah, your decos, yeah. your decos would go for forty minutes at the end of the day, even longer if it, if it had been deep. And so, next thing, because we all used to play that, taking turns, and all of a sudden they were writing notes and they wouldn't let me see them, and they were fucking passing these notes to each other. I'm like, what the fucking fucking going on here so i just oh yes didn't pay much attention so the the thing with the with the dive in the regimented is that the dive times have to be spot on you do exactly 40 minute dive you hear a big dong on the boat you have to stop work you have to go and deco if you're lagging that drags everyone behind that fucks times up that fucks the dives up is like you know you, you can't fuck around like call it shopping after the bell you're not allowed to shop after the bell yeah. so anyway next dive jump in go next time no, I haven't said nothing to me you know Matt Murray's been fuck he's not really happy about me <laughs> <laughs> disrespecting him folks he's already fucking off he has I think at this stage I'd already been sacked twice like they would they'd come up with these reasons folks in Tucker you know for sacking me at the end of each trip and anyway, the um, going for this next dive, the bell rings, 
you come to your line, you've got a big bag that you blow up your line and you bring that, and I was on the middle line, which, which has the oxy on it. So I get to the middle line, I'm swimming my bag up. Oh, shit, the boys are already there. Folksy and Matt were already at the line and they always shot behind the belt. Because they, they old dudes they could do what they like. I wasn't allowed to shot behind the belt, but... Here they are, they're already on the DK line. I'm going, fucking, jeez, oh, that's unusual. So I look up at them, and they've got the oxy riggers clipped onto my line. So I shoot my bag up, fill it up with air, and it goes flying up. And he unclips the oxy to let my bag come through. Then all of a sudden, when he sees the, once I've let the bag go, he clips the oxy back on, and they both stand back, and my bag goes up, hits the oxy rig, and takes that to the surface as well so then i've fucking i'm belting up going oh no i'm gonna get in trouble for this and i'm chased my fucking bag up grab my bag it's fucking ripping me trying to unhook so i get ripped to the surface out of fucking you know, 26 meters or without something decom- without, without any decompressing go all the way up there fucking unclip it all bring it back down get down there they're just fucking giving me dirty looks both just you know giving me the test <laughs> anyway we do our they, de- they didn't expect you to chase it up well it didn't matter the whole purpose was just that I was going to have a fuck I was a fuck up caused by me yeah anyway we get up and fucking next thing comes over the speaker Rick to the wheelhouse Rick to the wheelhouse <laughs> at this stage I'd been getting called to the wheel all the dudes look at me the other the deckies and the young crew you know they're all chugging all, all, yeah, all oh, fucking... what, what is it this time what's he done this time but the thing was at this stage I was beating folksy I was beating folksy consistently and I was getting I was getting upper thirds and seconds and fourths so I'd sort of, and Folksy was dropping back and they're going, fuck Folksy, you got to forget about Rick and just start catching some Michelle, you know, and that was pissing him off even more, you know. So it was just this battle and I get up there and, I, and he goes, Folksy's like, you could have killed me then. I said, what, what, what do you mean? He goes, you know, you, you fucking sent your bag up, you fucking ripped the oxy off, you, you've endangered me and Matt Murray's lives. I'm like the two toughest fucking hardest nails divers fucking <laughs> diving for 30, 40 years. Matt Murray's tail's like, he was a tough mother. And they're going, oh, you've endangered our life. That's it. Sorry, Rick, we're going to have to let you go. You know, this is just unacceptable. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, what the fucking, you're kidding, you know? So, I, yeah, right. I go back down. I go, oh, I've been sacked. And they're like, oh, that's fucked, man. You know, and everyone's commiserating. We're all gutted, you know, get, oh, you still got a fucking help unload? And, you know, fuck, yeah, right, I'm sucked. Anyway, so I go in, so the the sea, the, the trips up there, they work on um, springs and neeps. So you, the neeps is when the slack tides, so the water movements the less, the tidal rise, and that's the diving time. When it springs, it's heaps of water movement, too much tide, can't dive. So the boats work. So they what, have seven, eight-metre tide swings. Up yeah, yeah, huge, yeah. huge tides. Huge horizontal movement of water. So come back to spring, I get called... The, we had a new man, a new company, new CEO. So you're off the boat. We're off the boat. We're back on land. Get called up, Rick. Fucking Matt Murray. Matt Murray was sort of, and I was friends. We hung out with fucking Matt Murray and this other dude. And Matt Murray sort of going, oh, you know, 
know, he's just sort of fucking grizzling. He was just pissed off that I wasn't respecting him enough. And then um, I get called to this meeting and there's Steve Arrow, who was the owner of the company and who I'd got on really quite well with. And there was a new guy, new manager. Um, he didn't know very well, so he was just being, you know, Steve Tucky was the skipper of the boat so he's got a fair bit of swing and you know the head diver but i'd already done this trip to thursday island the year before and i'd endeared myself with the owner and the skipper had fucked up and he only had his job very luckily and i'd sort of had been a bit of a whistleblower on that sort of story of what was going on on this trip so that's why the tucker fucker was pretty off me so he gets in there going for this meeting the tucker fucker brings in this pie chart He's got a pie chart of the catch, of all the people's catch on the boat. And he's going, well, you know, we've got this pie chart. We can see the, uh, the amounts everyone's getting. And, you know, Rick is, is endangered. Matt Murray's... And as soon as the... Because Steve Barrow was a diver himself. He'd dived for years. He was a super... He knew what's he, up. Knew, he knew fucking Pearl and he knew exactly what was going on. And they love it. They love the competition. The Pearls are getting called quicker. So he's going, so... Where where is he on the list? Yeah, he's number four. But you can see you're on the chart. <laughs> in number four? Oh no, you stay. Like if I had been number six and I was a pain in the ass, and he goes, no, well there's four guys behind him that we'll get rid of before him because they're five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah. So no, Rick stays. And that was it. So then you have to go back to work another fucking ten days with these guys. This group of guys just try to sack you. And then go and spend another 10 days at sea with them, man. You're living in a quarter of six guys, just dealing with fucking folks. It was, yeah. With you paranoia, I'd be like, they're going to kill me. Yeah. No? Uh, no, I wasn't worried about getting killed. I didn't think they'd kill me. Maybe accidentally. The one, the water one with Matt Murray rattled me a little bit. I was a little bit, I didn't go pushing my rope over folks here. I was a little bit more careful. But, you know, at the same time, like, no, nah, I'm not going to fucking quit, you know. It was just that the the deter if if I quit they would have won they just would have you know I, I was worn down got rid of fucking yep yeah, how old later. were you at this point this I was about thirty three or something I was pretty old for a starting yeah, drift yeah. diver so yeah. when I got there they said there's no way you won't even get a line you're too old you've missed it but I came in on the back of a cyclone so the cyclone had blown all the pearl farms to the shit. It had sunk Arrow's Pearl's main drift diving boat. And as a result of that, a lot of their drift divers had gone to different companies. Then this project came up where there was opportunity to go to the Torres Straits for a five-month Pearl trip up there. They were starting a new Pearl farm and they wanted to go checking out all this Pearl country up there. So I'd gone and done that Pearl trip up in the Torres Straits. Matt Murray, me... A few other guys. Not folksy. Folksy wasn't there, thank fuck. I wouldn't have survived. But uh, yeah, me and Matt Murray up there in the Torres Straits, and we ended up with Did six. Did you guys get along again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was always ended up good mates with Matt Murray. He was good. So he, he, he just got pushed over by folksy a bit? No, I just pushed him. You did. I, yeah, I pushed him and then folks, he was going, yeah, fuck this dude. And, you know, it was yeah. just like, what are you going to do? You got some upstart. Or you got to do that you've been most with for all your pearl and career. You're going to, yeah, look, you know. 
So, no, and even with folks here, then a couple of times, oh, you know, I, I don't have a problem with you, Rick, just, you know, you're not a bad diver, but, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't what? know. <laughs> yeah. But he was proper nuts, man. He had a fuck. he put an ad in a paper. He was right in a fighting. He was a fucking mean street fighter. I don't know if he trained martial arts. He used to fight martial artists. He was just a mean fucking fighter. He put an ad in the Western Australian paper and he wanted to start his own UFC fight where a winner takes all so he'd organize this fight just for anyone to go in and he put up a thousand bucks of his own money for this contest backyard i don't know if they were going to have it in a hall or at a pub or it's the fucking wild west over there and somehow it got misprinted in the paper and it said folks he will fight anyone for one thousand (laughs) dollars And in no offers. No one took him up. No one wanted to fight him for a thousand bucks. Wow. Yeah, he was... They used to fucking go to Derby. I've never been to Derby, but they reckon they're real tough asses up there, man. Where's Derby? Derby is um, past Broome, uh, somewhere in the Kimberley Gulf. I'm not sure there's a big peninsula there and... It's just some um, out of the way. There's heaps of ringers, outback ringers. Ringers. Um, you know, the, the guys that work on the outback farms out there, yeah. you're like, they're just tough and crazy. They just love fighting, you know. They're just, it's a sport up there, just fighting. They used to play this game up there where the trick was to sneak up and king hit your mate. The idea was to sneak up and king hit him. Like, that was... From behind. Yeah, that was the, fu- that was the fun. It was like if you could crack one on your mate, like... That was what they used to do. And then focusing this other mate of his who was, he was some sort of karate guy and they'd go up, him and folks would go up there and they'd fucking take on the old pub and do all this kind of stuff. They were just, animals. yeah, just animals. <laughs> <laughs> In a nutshell, fucking animals, yeah. But it was a pretty good experience, man. I, I don't think I didn't learn much off, I didn't really learn much off folks here, but I learned a lot from Matt Murray. Matt Murray's a good dude. And so after that, have you ever had your own outfit before that? How do you mean? Like, you know, had a boat and... Oh, before I went there, I was working as a lease diver in Mallacoota and it was an owner-supplied boat. So, yeah, I hadn't really had my own run my own whole operation. I always worked with the owner's boat or that kind of thing. So then when I finished up in Broome, but it taught me an incredible amount about decompression managing dive tables dive times you know all the purling stuff and i was pretty immersed in all the histories amazing histories heaps of awesome books museums all this culture they started old wooden clipper ships with hand-driven pumps and yeah it was it was good it was a really good industry to be a part of and learning learning incredible amount and set me up for the, you know my position with the scalloping and, and and bringing the pearl diving system to scallop diving in Victoria in Victoria that wasn't really done before no no it's just really it's just a very broom thing the pearl diving tables you know you're not allowed to use those tables anywhere else in the world all that kind of stuff you know it's, why because of water temperature or just because well of- the water temperature changes the decompression factors yeah the decompression times but it was developed by the pearl industry for the pearl industry so yeah 
And, and still to today, do they say that the tourists are at island people and people of the Asia countries are better divers, or is that just a thing of that time? Um, it's probably just a thing of that time. When I was there, you didn't have as many of those guys doing the diving anymore, um, and the pearling. They're still up in the Torres Strait. They're all the cray divers up there, all the local guys, all the islanders. They're they're amazing ocean people like you know living around the water when you're in the Torres Strait so everyone's just fanging around in little tinnies everywhere just covering these huge distance between all these islands it's and it's treacherous water like there's lots of currents small islands reefs a lot of water moves you know through that through the Torres Strait there it's 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 pretty pretty full on up there and there's all the you know the Papua New Guineans the islanders Thursday Island. Thurs- Did you ever meet anyone who was just sorry to cut you off, but anyone who's just looking for shipwrecks, like wreck divers? Well, Folksy's dad yeah. was a legendary wreck hunter. That's how Folksy started, and they used they reckon that Folksy's yeah, he was a, his dad was a wreck hunter. And like, where you pillage them and take the antiques and yeah, I think back in the day because his dad was a. Uh, cray, cray fisherman I think and he got through crane and from that you know they did all the wreck diving and you know all those WA wrecks and the bounty and all that kind of oh not the bounty the what's the one that we're talking about Batavia Batavia yeah yeah did he dive that I don't know if he died but I remember them saying how this site had been dived by hundreds of divers and folks he went there for a dive and found a sextant and a couple of other navig- sextants, like a brass navigation instrument, really old. So this dive, this thing had been dived hundreds of times, but no one had ever spotted this this um, sextant there. Because he had the pearl eyes. He had the pearl eyes, and he had he was really good shell collector. So a thing up there that everyone was writing to was collecting shells, like these little carry shells, all these different types of shells. And there's these little shells that'd be worth two, three, four thousand dollars. You know, just these incredible shells and you know guys would get these shells as well while they were diving and that'd be part of your you know earning earning money on the side from your from your diving side hustle yeah side hustle and um do many people like slip one into your jacket you know the pearls or when you're diving for whatever for like just to make a bit more money that'd be a pretty sackable offence would it or not super sackable offence so the pearl diving because the industry is so old over there there's all these rules pertaining to pearl divers so if you're a licensed pearl diver so you have to go to you know register be a licensed pearl diver you are not allowed to be in possession of an undocumented pearl as a law what if it's in your cock I think that's <laughs> that's probably enough documentation. You're not really stealing it. You're just carrying it around with you. <laughs> that was, yes. I don't know how I got there. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I know how I got there. Yeah. Sorry to throw you off on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's a no-no to be stealing and obviously dealt with pretty... Yeah, so when, on the, when I was on the Torres Strait trips, there was a lad up there, Batty... And apparently he'd been kicked off the pearl farm where he worked because some pearls went missing. And I know when we were in Cairns, halfway through the trip, I lent him some money. He's going, I'll fix you up with a pearl. I'll fix you up with a pearl. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard heard you've got some real good ones. But uh, no, I never got the pearl. Never got the money back either. But yeah, it's because you don't really come in contact 
with the nat with the farm pearls unless you're working on the pearl farms so we were drift divers so we were getting the wild pearls and bringing them in capturing them and then bringing them into where they would get operated on so they catch them out in the wild they put them on the bottom let them have a rest readjust put them in panels clean them then they pick them all up and they take them to the operating farms so they have like um, big pearl lines where all the pearl shell is suspended in panels along these float lines and then there they do the operations what do you mean operations like well, shape them well no no they have actual Japanese technicians well this used to always be the skill of the Japanese was placing a small nuclei of Mississippi pearl shell into the naked sack of the animal so a pearl shell to lay down more shell has a mantle and it has a little naked sack that produces the mother of pearl so it has like a tongue and it paints it down it continues so it uses that organ to lay down more shell and that how it grows its shell so if a little bit of grit or sand comes down and it lodges around the lip of the animal somewhere and it's an irritant to the soft tissue of the animal so it coats it in nacre in the mother of pearl and then that produces the pearl so that's when you find a pearl inside the edge of the animal that's a natural pearl that's been grown by a grain of sand so a japanese guy matsuyo yamamoto came up with the idea or developed this idea of doing a small incision into the sack that produces the nacre, the mother of pearl, and placing a little bead in there. So they actually get the animal, they open it, they put a wedge in its mouth, they have a special like surgical type tool that keeps it open. They sit there with operating instruments, different size beads, and they sit there, they do a little cut, and they drop the bead Under in a there. Microscope kind it's of It's not light. really a microscope. I think it's more just looking in. Mm. So this used to be a very hidden technique and the Japanese would never share this and slowly over the years they taught some white people and you know they they lost the um, the exclusivity of doing the operators now there's Australian operate you know people that do the operations and all that kind of stuff so they do that operation and then the shell gets given goes back in panels and then the dump divers and the, the drift divers usually when you finish drifting you go on to the ops boat and then when you're doing the ops they give you those shells and they've just been operated so the Japanese guys they want you to be really careful with their shells so you're real gentle because they've only been incisioned and cut mm. and then you go and put them on the bottom in big lines and you tie them to these bottom lines and then every day you turn the panel over so it's trying to rotate so it's moving the bead around inside the sack so it's trying to get an even coating and then they leave it like that for two years oh, you know, two years? yeah well they do the turning program goes for about a month First, you're turning them every day. Then after a month, you turn them every second day. Then after two months, you lift them up and you put them on lines and they suspend them in the water. And then they, yeah, they maintain them for two years, a year or two years. I think it might be two years. And then after two years, they do when they do operations again, they get all the new shell, they reseed the new shell. And then the old shell, they lift them out, they cut that sack open, they take 
the pearl out that's being or the nuclei that's being coated then they match it you know because it's growing bigger than the original nuclei and then they get another one that's about the same size as the one they've taken out and then they put that in and so then they give cl- that they're just cloning well it's not cloning it's it's just coating this nuclei and you can't you can't guarantee that it's going to do a perfect coating you can't guarantee the color the shape or that kind of thing so that's why very perfectly round pearl and perfectly matched pearls are super expensive and so what how much like this is a lot of fluffing around it is a lot of fucking around and then the the sil there's a silver blue color which was the premium color so the mantle of the pearl shell has predominantly a gold lip or a yellow lip or a silver blue lip but if you've got a yellow lip pearl shell you can cut a bit of the mantle off a silver blue and put it in the naked sack and you can change the color of the pearl so you don't get a gold pearl you actually get a silver blue so genetically that one's stronger it's just a different color but the mantle somehow yeah i'm not exactly sure of the science but yeah they can affect the color of them as well yeah so they do that over a few years and i think after six years after three three cycles then i think the animals yeah pretty worn out and they so what do they sell a sh- one for well it depends on the size of the pearl and the perfect notes of it i, I think they can get up to 50 hundred thousand, depending yeah. on the size how big and how perfect and the quality of the naked coating it's big, big money then. Big money, big business, super high maintenance. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a massive industry and you wonder, like, how are they so popular? Like, and they're still going. I'm, I'm not sure of the status of the industry now. I don't know if they do as much dry, drift diving as they used to and it's a lot more farm stuff. They're doing more hatchery stuff. Um. So all this time underwater. Now I know um, I want just uh, you've got. I know you've got a couple of these stories, uh, and you've been reluctant to tell me ever. Uh, I want <laughs> you say you've had a, you've seen some big fish underneath there, and you said you had a couple of close ones. Yeah, f- sharks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I haven't seen any real. I've seen one pretty big shark. Uh, sort of 12 foot tiger shark sort of nearly ate my boss one time that was pretty tiger sharks are real soft placid animal Uh, they're not a strike hit hard hunter they're a completely different um, fish to a white pointer so although I'm all along just swim up and come up and have a bit of a chew on you not hard hitting aggressive sort of animal I had I started my diving career working in North Queensland I got a do- job diving so sorry you were a deckhand in Mallacoota so I was a deckhand in Mallacoota um, always worked away just wanted to be a diver so bad how do you get a start at that stage it was licenses weren't transferable people died and the license was gone I couldn't sell them um, it was just evolving into a period now where a few sons were getting old enough to dive. They did a bit of a dive buyback thing where they wanted to reduce the number of ab licenses. So they said, oh, if you sell, if you buy two licenses, you can get one. And then that was the first time they became saleable or transferable. And then in the process of that, they could transfer them to their sons 
or to a family member so it slowly you know started opening up it's sort of like how do you get a how do you get a start you know so had decade wanted just well you got to get a dive job just got to be a diver so I'd gone to Cairns. At that stage, I was a pretty keen Spiro. So I used to go to Aussie titles and really? spear fishing clubs. Yeah, I think I went to the Aussie titles. I got second last. <laughs> I was... <laughs> 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 You're practicing all around Malakuta, <laughs> We're practicing a lot. Yeah. It's not like shipping abs off in a spear fishing comp. It's uh, a bit different. There's quite a few skills required. Uh, but it was early days. Like we, the main reason we went in these Aussie titles that they were in Eden, so it was close. It was close to home. But as a spear fishing comp, like an Aussie title spear fishing, is three days of fishing. They get 120 of Australia's best divers. They all take you to one spot, jump in and go. Or you can't go that way, but you can go as far as you like that way. So it's 100 divers jump in and swim, you know, these guys. Like how far offshore they take you? No, this is from a coast. You normally have to dive off, you know, coast. So they all drive to a spot and you're allowed to go as that far. Oh, and then, okay, but and then you have to, there and... Yeah, and then you have to be back here by three o'clock, you know. Right. So there'd be all sorts of methods, dudes, to just swim off flat out, try to get to the ground where no one is. Other guys would just be deep divers, so they'd go out in the deep where, you know, let's crew go, you know, that kind of thing. So I was pretty well just a full greenhorn when I was at the, went to the Aussie titles. What was your technique? I just... Couldn't swim as good as any of those crew. I just got sort of left behind. I know one stage I'd swam off and then I wasn't making it back and the safety boat came and, you better hang on to the boat, Rick. I'm going to get you back up. <laughs> I think I knew the safety officer. He towed us back up, got us back in the zone. And you just diving against these incredibly, you know, high school divers who we were just, you know, my mate Reinhardt that I was in it with, he did pretty well. He, he's been and represented Australia. He was a second generation ab dive, you know. So you got like weight belt fins, spear gun. Weight belt fins, spear gun. You have to have a big float. Catch bag? Not really a catch bag. You have a, a line that you sort of thread your fish through. Uh huh. So, yeah, and then they do that three days in a row. They count your fish by the weight and the species and the number of species, you know. So a guy like me, I might shoot, you know, five, six species. Like the gun guys would get fucking 15, 20 species, you know, and biggest weight and you'd have A-grade species and all that kind of stuff, you know. Pretty well wholesale slaughter on the fishing population. I think they've changed... They've taken a lot of fish off the list, like yeah. because back then we'd all the fish would get donated to um, elderly true. homes or no, no, they're given away to you know people and nursing homes and that kind of thing, or the fish would get filleted and that kind of stuff. So it was a little bit different, yeah. So just wanted to be the diver. This opportunity came up to go to Cairns. My good mate Winger, he was. Um, his dad was a prawn fisherman in Cairns and he was, we were going to go to Cairns and get his job. So we drove to Cairns. And while I was in Cairns, Winger got a job straight away because his dad owned the boats. And I was like, oh, yeah, we'll see how you go. So I'd done any prawning or any trawler work at that stage. So I was left there. While I was there, I love hanging around wharfs and 
jetties and harbours and boats. I was going checking all the wharfs out and just, you know, talking and saw a boat with dive gear, get talking to the dude. He's like, oh, you want a job? And I'm like, yeah, well, I'll get a job, you know. So had a job lined up with this guy, going to go out in a couple of days, this little shit of boat. And I caught up with this guy, Tony, who I'd met at these Aussie titles. And back then, all the gun divers all, were all poachers pretty well. That was sort of what they did on the side. And Tony was from Cairns, and he worked up this, for these uh, aquarium people in Cairns diving. And I said, oh, I've got a job lined up on this boat, aquarium diving. He's going, what, you want an aquarium dive? Fucking come with us. Don't go with them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, all right. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. So jumped on with them. And yeah, ended up staying there for two and a half years with, with this family, the Squires. So they were a family fishing business. The dad, Lyle Squire Senior, was a born and bred Cairns guy. He was a pro spearo, so he used to spearfish for a living. Like he'd go out and shoot, they'd do 10 day trips and they'd shoot coral trout, Spanish mackerel, no emperor, air. free diving, nowhere. Yeah. And. That was in the 70s, diving out of Cairns. I'd go all the way up past Port Douglas, have a freezer on board. And they used to shoot. They, they so used what to, they do, drop an anchor and then just go off? Yeah, and then just swim off. And they'd take these big, so his shark stories were fucking phenomenal. He had real full-on shark stories. Because they would hunt him because he had catch on board? Because it had catch. So Lyle Senior, they made all their own spear guns. They had their own wetsuits. They wore fully red suits. Red was the only colour. So their experience was fully influenced by their shark, their spear fishing experience. So the least attack colour was red. So like they, their floats, the sharks always come and chew in the float because you hang your fish Normally, like in Victoria, what you do, you have a long rope, you, have, you, you shoot a fish, you speed it onto your float line, it floats all the way back to your float, which is about 30 metres behind you because you've got to reach the bottom. Up there, what happens if you leave your fish all the way on the end of the rope, the sharks are just going to go and start eating them. And the worst thing up there was you could not let the sharks get fired up. Like once they start fucking getting pumped up and fired up, you know, it's just like stirring up a bunch of fucking cryo youth or something, you know, they're just going to get fucking gnarly, you know. So they all red geared, have a, like a quiver of, you know, they'd go away, they'd take three boxes of 303 shells with them for their power heads. Yeah. And, you know, the start of the ship, you know, you reckon at the start of the trip, they'd be just shooting every shark, you know, towards the end, you know, you've got a few, the freezer's not full, but you've only got six bullets left. So you'd have to really get picky on your sharks. And he was really big about, they were really big about fish shots, like kill shots. Yeah, had to kill your fish outright just bang kill the fish every time so with coral spear gun. with so a spear gun be a, like a headshot had to be a headshot had to yeah. be kill shot so lyle they all use prangers which are the multi-pronged spear like multiple i've always in victoria used a straight shaft what does that go through and then prong that jack? goes through yeah with a flopper on the end and then the fish catches on it with a pronger they use a pronger for one reason because you could get the so Lyle Senior's technique was shoot the fish dead, 
pull the line in straight away, reload your gun straight away before you took the fish off. First thing, just quickly reload, get your gun set back up, pull the rubber back on, fully reloaded, and then deal with your fish. So you Sounds fucking dangerous. It was dangerous. I don't know how I'd never shot myself through my hand because then you have to try to take your fish off the end of your loaded, loaded gun. gun. But the idea was so you were always fully protected you know so you could be protected against the shark yeah so you could be because these guys he used to shoot so they had a long ton and a short ton so a long ton was uh fillets where they filleted all the fish and they used to shoot that in a day one ton of fish fillets in a day or a short ton was just gill and gutted when you just yeah clean the guts out and and did the bodies if you think about that right how they're getting that much meat back obviously a while ago what the fuck is going on now well they're still fishing you know the but fish I mean, like the 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 numbers must be fucking huge yeah well they've still been fishing all the time i suppose is yeah the coral reefs would be recovering well you would imagine you got all the coral bleaching i don't even know what's going on up there anymore but coral trout um were a specific fish they breed to this area so yeah so working for the squires um it so was all anyway, about you reload yeah so you reload get your fish back on and then be ready to go again so so Lyle, so when i first got there they were going on these um they were right into hunting big tuna and big marlin. and everyone at this stage not really many big fish had been landed by spear fishermen and all the records were quite small. So they were gonna go out to this um, sea mount, you know, just a low sea mount out in the fucking middle of the ocean somewhere. And it was real sharky, a lot of oceanic white tips out there and so there's a seamount like an underwater mountain. Yeah, underwater mountain. So you're nothing on the surface. Comes up to maybe 30 meters or 24 meters. So you can't. You're not really down near the bottom. You're pretty well in the ocean. But a structure like that always attracts fish and life. And and they wanted to get. Tune- I think they were chasing bluefin. I think they chased some bluefin tuna. Anyway, I really wanted to, Rick, you're not ready. You can't come yet. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm fucking ready. You know. And they're like, no, you're not ready. And Oh, fucking, I was pissed off that they wouldn't let me come. But then in the process and the things I learnt, learnt those next couple of years with sharks and learning, you know, shit shots and what goes wrong when you don't shoot a shark properly and that kind of thing, you know. So because down here, you know, you don't really deal with sharks like on a daily occurrence. Like up there, there's always sharks, you know, of varying sizes and varying types. So the black, the... Black V whalers, the, so the different types of whalers that the bull sharks come from, like that family, they were the most aggressive. Um, the black V whalers were the, the nasty ones. There's a silver, silver albimarginatus and a longimatus, a couple of the different types of sharks that would get pretty aggressive fast. Not really big, sort of four to eight foot, but in quite sort of large numbers. And really want to go, yeah. Well, they just get stirred up by activity. Mm. So They're party sharks. They're party sharks. They're little pack animals. So they're just cruising around. You'll be diving, cruising. Like, you know, the first close call I probably didn't even notice. So we dive all day, spear, you know, working, catching, you know, catching aquarium fish. 
and then at the end of the day the last hour or two you'd see where the coral trout were during the day or you'd spot a barramundi cod that lived at a rock or you'd spot some good fish guys some good trout here and come back so you come back finish off all your work grab your spearing gear and you go unhook from your reg and go spearing in the afternoons shoot your coral trout bring them back fillet them and as you were eating the food out of the fridge you'd fill it up with your coral trout fillets and then you'd sell them when you got back so that was like your little bit of you know income on the side of me you know because in the learning phase learning aquarium fish was really hard going huge learning curve so yeah spearing fish was the it was my main bit of money that I made. So I was always spearing fish every night. So then you start having a few shark run-ins. So I kept hearing the boys just say, oh, if you're getting hassled by one, just shoot it through the gills. But what they did, they always had screw-on pranger heads. And what they'd do, they'd unscrew the head of the pranger and then shoot the shark through the gills and then it would fuck the shark up it would take off uh, and it would get hooked on and it wouldn't get hooked on and I've got this I've shot him up on this reef I'm by myself this, I've got this five six foot shark hanging around me starting to get a bit pumped up God, I'm just going to shoot it through the gills <laughs> I've shot this thing through the gills but I've got a flopper on my thing holy fuck because it's not a kill shot it's just a friggin aggravating shot so this shark's just gone absolute can't get it off my I'm getting towed around, just holding on to my gun. It just destroyed my spear. The spear was just crashed. Went back to the boat with a bucket of spear. So there was two brothers. There was the family was um, Lyle Senior and Lyle Junior, who was like a gun diver. He was an Australian champion. Was represented Australia. Hal Spiro, super educated, bit of a poshie, I'm heaps better than you dudes. And then his younger brother, Cadel, who was a front row rugby player. He was the captain of the beast and played first grade A in the props. He's tough as fuck, but just real regular dude, you know, just real good guy. He'd come back, he'd be just laughing, like, oh, fucking Rick. <laughs> he was just continually, you know, shaking his head at the dumb shit that I used to do. So slowly I got educated about sharks and, you know, Lyle's telling us the stories and, you know, their behaviour and all that kind of thing. So another day we were diving, we had this other guy, Victorian, with us on the boat. We nicknamed the pirate. He was just hopeless, this dude. Anyway, we've gone for a spear after work. Cadle's gone one direction and uh, the pirate and I have gone in another. Pirate's gone down and just shit shot this big emperor. Just hit it in the middle. Things just gone. Fucking fighter to carry on has got off. It swam under a rock. You can just see a big trail of green coming out from under the rock, you know. And fucking next thing, oh, there's a whaler goes flying past because it's the action that gets them going. Yeah. It's not the blood, it's the vibration, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just the smashing. That's what they hear. It's the vibrations. So, you know, the pirates just fucking laughing. Next thing, you know, the two of us together. See this big whale fucking zooming, you know. As soon as they start swimming fast, their whole body posture changes. They get this fin down position. Their backs get a little bit arched. They just get fucking super highly mobile. So it's like they're flexing? Oh, they're flexing, man. They're getting pumped up, you know, like hackles up. Next thing, fucking Cadle, who's off by himself, gets fucking hammered by this 
shark by this whaler he gets fucking has to fight this thing off when he's he's gone and shot a fish this thing's all pumped up because it's all worked up over pirate shit shot next thing Cadel's come fuck get us out of the water I've nearly been eaten he was all freaked out and I nicknamed Cadel the, the ice man the whole time I was there because I'd never seen him like he was rock solid this dude and fuck this day he was freaked out so yeah he must have got fairly upped up by this whaler by himself and he'd been spearing his dad used to tow him along in a little rubber in a rubber tyre behind him when he was on these spearfishing trips like he'd seen shark shit his whole life he was pretty he was pretty rattled by the sharks so you know you get this development of you you're working all the time you're getting more experience you're just spearing fish every day you're getting good breath hold just super relaxed underwater you know we're building everyone was building their own guns you know these squires built their own spear guns handmade triggers all their gear getting power heads made you know disposable power heads with 44 magnum shells in them for blasting sharks so then we'd go on these we were doing these trips out in the coral sea out to the homes and flora reef these big adult reefs like 24 hour steam in this old boat you know going eight knots this old shit of prawn boat right out into the middle of the fucking coral sea man like 800 miles offshore it's gnarly like just big deep blue ocean you get so the first we get to this coral the this homes reef first time i've ever been there just hear all this amazing stuff we're driving along the edge of the reef we're looking at where your kitchen bench is like a couple of meters we can see the top of the reef there on the sounder is zero the sounder cannot reach the bottom it's two thousand meters vertical wall of just this coral just grows straight up out of the ocean then they find this spot where there's a little bit of a less so it doesn't breach the water at all oh, there's part of its tidal so yeah. the very the top of its tide it had a little bit of a sand couple of sand k's you know little sand push-ups there was a light was built on it over on one side um, Fuck some, but, they must have put some ships down back in the day uh, there's a couple of shipwrecks on there there's a couple of tuna longliners that were just washed up on there just way out in the fucking just this big chunk and it's a there's a couple of miles and there's a two systems there was homes and a floor and a couple little fingers so we dive around the edges of this big thing and you know you'd start at the start you'd be doing all the deep dives and then towards the end of the trip you know as you're getting more gassed up you'd work on the inside and in the lagoons but it was fucking super sharky over there so holding you free diving or online well we'd work online for the aquarium fish and and then in the evenings you'd go spear and you know just for the fun of it and we used to do this spear where they'd do a shark dive so there's a tourist boat bringing people out and they'd chum up all these sharks and we're fucking 50, 100 metres away, work. <laughs> and there's beer, and then we go spearing after work. So you'd get, sometimes you just get, when you're out there, you'd go, a lot of the fish, um, there's a thing called uh, a little bacteria that grows, cigaterra. It's a bacteria that grows in the water column, in the plankton, and fish eat it. And the top of the food chain fish accumulate all this cigaterra and it can make you pretty crook. I've fucking got some friends. I used to bring coral trout fillets back here when I was visiting and hand them all out. And I think, you know, um, Fast Eddie, man, I made his, 
his father-in-law. I think I might have put him in a hospital with some pretty serious cigarette poisoning, eh? pins and needles and near heart attack. Anyway, so yeah, when we were in the coral sea, you didn't, you'd look for Spanish mackerel. There was a couple of species. There was only a couple of fish. Or you couldn't shoot any big coral trout or anything big. But we'd go on fucking slaying missions, you know, just try to shoot, get a big tuna. There was a big dog tooth tuna out there. And the f- sharks, we were spearing near the shark side. And next thing we've got this shark, it's hanging around, it's getting pretty aggressive. Or I will fuck take care of this one with a power head you know got this like six foot shark there the shark comes up swim down just bang like you hear a power head go off so on a it. power head it's got the bullet wedged in the end it has a casing and it yeah. sits in the you make an attachment that sits on the end of your spear so when it the spear hits into the back of the percussion cap it, it, it strikes it off so does it ha- does that go on the end of a gun or is it, does he have to touch it with a stick it's got to be on the spear gun so it's on a gun yeah on, uh-huh. on your spear gun yeah 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 I always just thought they were I think you can have like a bang stick like that but you know back then it was and we're talking about the just this is the days in um I'm in far north Queensland this is the days when you can walk into a gun shop in north Queensland buy Armalite you know when I first got up there Armalites were still available in the shops you know Armalite is a type of gun as a a, a M16 yeah M16 yeah yeah a semi-auto one yeah semi-auto M16 and those Chinese AKs like they were everywhere in Queensland when I got up there guns like no gun license just go buy a box of pistol shells no dramas so, yeah, that's why we're yeah, all, yeah. all making power heads. So, yeah, I've gone down, see this fish starts playing up. Bang, shot this shark. It has just gone spiraling, spinning, just swimming straight up and just disappeared. Because I'm looking up and watching it, but it's just shot out of the water. I'm just like, what the fuck? Just look, where's this? You know, I'm 15 minutes down. Look, the next thing, fuck, it lands over near where Cadle was. This thing had just gone fucking bunto, flying through the air, flying, landed fucking 15 metres away. Fucking Cadle, like, what are you? Because as soon as you hear something, as soon as you hear the bang underwater, it's like, fuck, what's up? Yeah. You know, you get sort of back close together. Yeah, so then, you know, we're getting more experience with sharks, seeing more full-on sharks out there, dealing with them a bit more. And then on on that first trip out there, I had my first, one of my first proper working drownings, like near drowning incident. So <clears throat> at this side of this Homes and Flora, the, f- the fish life there is... 500 fold of what you see on the barrier reef like it is just clouds literally clouds of fish just so full of life it is just so amazing the most incredible diving you know just all species is just tenfold it's just clouds of fish so you could target all these different species but hit these walls for these biocolors and you'd go here for the blue tangs and then you'd chase you know this fish there and so you go there for a certain type of coral and all these different species so you've got this spot and they're all the boys were pumped up about this the blue tang dive oh the blue tangs that's the little nemo fish the famous little nemo so you go to this spot where there's these blue tangs and the blue tangs lived so so you're catching these live to go back to aquariums yeah live to aquariums yeah so 
the blue tangs lived in these coral heads, but they lived in a pass of the reef where the current poured through like the current was full on. So it was like this big mouth opening. So the current is pouring out of this huge like cul-de-sac of the reef, goes through this, you know, half K wide opening and pours over a 2,000 metre edge just over this wall. And the bottom is like fucking concrete, man, like undulating hard concrete, you know, limestone, just a few little features, little edges and cracks and then they have these dead man fingers of corals and they're just like this real hard coral come out like a tree bush up to about you know three foot high and a couple of feet wide and the blue tangs would live in them like little schools and you'd get a whole little cloud of fish and the technique was that you'd go around there and you'd set your net up in a sort of barrier downstream using the current and then you tapped the different bits of coral till you got one that made a certain pitch and you kept tapping it and it would annoy the fish and they'd all swim and take off. And when they did that, they'd swim into your net and you'd scoop them up. And these fish were like worth from 15 to $50 per fish. So all the boys, it was like they're pumped off. This is where you're going to make huge money, you know. So we got there and everyone was pumping. Everyone's, yeah, yeah, blue tang dive. I'm looking, it's just we pulled up the fucking current is roaring I've never dived in a current like it and if anything went wrong you were just going straight out to sea off the edge of this coral reef like it was you held on to the boat by this little bit of fucking eight mil garden hose you know and I'm like fucking hell this is pretty fucking <laughs> scary and they're all pumped and I'm just shitting myself it's like, fuck, what's out there? And it's like, oh, there's fucking nothing out there. Fiji that way and fucking New Guinea that way and Cairns back that way at Andrew K's. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, right here. So what do you do? He goes, all right, well, you get down there and the idea is you go down and you tie because this current is pulling so hard on your hose. So you go down there and you tie your hose off to a bit of coral, you know, so you... And then you find your thing and you work. And I said, oh, yeah, all right, yeah. So, all right, so I've gone down there. I found a little patch of fish, got on my net set up, pulled some hose in, tied off. What he neglected to tell me was that you should really allow enough hose to reach the surface. So we're diving in 15, 18 metres water, 12, 15 metres. I've tied enough hose off to... I didn't even take it into consideration about how much hose I needed to tie off. Yeah. I just thought I've got to tie the hose off. So I've tied the hose off. I'm working. Next thing, because the current's pulling so hard, my hose kinks. So no air. So a hose kink, it's a, you lose your air in different ways when you're diving, but a hose kink comes on quick. It's like one minute. And you don't know you've lost your air until you go to breathe in. So you breathe out, <coughs> breathe in, no air. So and you don't have any on board. Well, you, you don't have any on board because yeah. you just breathed out. Yeah. Didn't wear bailout bottles. Fuck, swim to the surface. So I've gone swimming to the surface, but the current is pulling that hard on the angle of the hose. I can't quite reach the surface. So I'm swimming and I'm getting up but I fucking can't get my head up so I'm trying to swim forward into this rip and I'm, I'm fucking drowning man I'm just coughing I've got my reg out of my mouth I'm trying to breathe I'm trying to pull on my head I'm looking at the boat I'm probably 15 metres to the side of the boat directly to the side so if I unclipped 
I wasn't going to make it for a swim. And we were only 10, 15 minutes into the dive. So it was like, if you don't make the boat, you're just going out of the sea. There's No prob- eyeballs on you? No eyeballs. Everyone's in the water. Everyone's diving. I was just doing their thing. Oh, this, it was a fucking struggle for life. I'm swimming. I'm fucking breathing. The current is fucking raw. I'm just head out. I'm kicking. You're fighting harder, which is making you breathe. Oh, so you're above the surface now? Well, I'm, tr- I'm half. I've got a head yeah. up. I'm yeah. down. I'm trying to swim. You're trying to swim forward to get air. You're trying to... I'm just trying to snap the hose off the coral. It was, it was fucking dire, man. And just at that time, like they timed this dive... So you've got 15 minutes either side of the tide and all of a sudden, just like, tidal pressure came off, tide came off, pressure, fucking swam down, just fuck, unwrap my hose, just grab all my shit, my net's caught, I'm just ripping my net off the coral, I'm just tearing my net to pieces, I fucking grab my shit, I fucking swim back to the boat, I get back to the duckboard of the boat, like I was... Like, look at me, man, I'm just goosebumping. I was fucking hanging on to the... I did not have the energy to climb out of the water. I'm laying at the back of the boat. Fuck, finally get up, get all my shit in, fucking climb up the boat, just fully fucking rattled. Just sitting there, dive, next thing all the dives start getting back. Oh, yeah, that was sick. (laughs) (laughs) They get back, they've all got like fucking two, three thousand dollars worth of fish. I might have had one, I think, maybe one or two and tore my net to pieces. Like, it was all handmade nets and stuff. And I didn't really tell them what happened. I was just like, and it was just that, that turning of the boat and the, the, the first you're super alert to sounds in the water because it's just there's silence there's silence but it's not silent there's sounds like being in the forest but initially you don't hear much but as you more time in the water you hear more and more you become more alert to sound just fine sound and the first thing i heard was the anchor like because the current started turning i could hear the anchor chain you know like fucking moving i still remember that that fucking anchor chain and then in the ensuing years because we used to do about you could only go to the um, homes and floor in summer in between cyclones and shit out there when it was calm so you do two or three trips a year so and that was the first year and the first time I went out there so yeah then after that you you're gathering all that experience. You've had a few sharks incidents. You've shot some sharks. You know they're feeling more. They're feeling more confident in having you in the water with them, as that you're not going to get them eaten. Yeah. Like you know, here we hear all these spear fishing stories the last few years. You know, just recently. Um, you know, the ski guy that got eaten by the shark. The ski guy. Um, the snowboarder guy. Um, Chumpy Pullins, man. Who just he got he was spear fishing and and got got chomped. Where? Uh Queensland somewhere. Oh, the Olympic guy. Yeah, the Olympic guy, man. I thought he drowned. No, 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 shark. Really? Yeah, yeah, spearing. So what's happening is crew are going spearing and they're just shit shooting these fish, and the sharks are going crazy and they're just getting chomped up in the process. <clears throat> yeah, so anyway, so we're gathering all this experience, hardened up with a few drownings, had another few close incidents. Anyway, Cato's got getting more inf- getting more confident in me. 
all right, Rick, we're going to go, we're going to see if we can shoot a marlin on the way home. So the last couple of days of fishing, we were keeping all our carcasses. So we had this big drum full of fucking rotten fish and fillets. and oh, yeah, yeah, he'd be huge fucking like 200 litres of chopped up burley and blood and fish. And we were going to go and stop at this reef called Jenny Louise, which is just out of Cairns on the way home and go back there and try to spear a marlin. What? So, Spear marlin. Spear marlin. So swimming. Yeah, swimming. No tanks. Just no tanks. Just free diving. A so huge we get marlin. A huge marlin. So we get to this reef, Jenny Louise. <coughs> we got oh, there was three. There's Cadel, Bondi, and I. The three of us. So Bondi stayed on the front of the boat, and he did the burley. The current was quite strong, so we had by the time he was throwing the burley off the front of the boat, it wasn't sinking down to wipe so we ended up setting up this big long rope that hanged on the boat we were hanging off the back of the boat and it was pretty deep it was about 25 30 meters deep so we've been burling up for a while shot a i got a nice rainbow runner it's pelagic fish and cadel got a nice mackie you know he's starting to see sharks down on the bottom you know we're spearing just sort of mid-water so you're just you're trying to get action that's going to attract the fish that's going to bring the marlin in, you know. So it's gone off the boil for a little while. We both shot a good fish. I shot myself a really good coral trout, one of the sort of deepest fish I'd shot. I was pretty pumped with this fish I'd shot. Then it's gone a little bit quiet. You can see all these sharks down on the bottom. Like so what? when you say the bottom, like in the bottom of your vision? No, well, down on the bottom. You're in 30 metres of water. It's crystal clear. You can look all the way to the bottom. So the bottom's 60 the bottom's 80, 90. 80, 90, but you can see him on the sand floor. Well, it's all reef and sand. Yeah. You can see him just cruising around because you've been dropping all this burly down there. All the coral trout are coming out. There's all fish coming out. There's action. There's smell. There's been a bit of action when we've shot stuff. It's fucking Saturday night down there. It's just all happening, you know. You're just <laughs> looking at all this stuff going on, but they're a long way away and they don't look that big. And there's a lot of them, but they're all spread out and they're camouflaged. And anyway, it'd gone a bit quiet, and this school of surgeon fish comes swimming through mid water. So I thought, oh, I'm fucking just gonna swim down. I'm gonna shit shot this fish, like deliberately just shoot it in the middle. And a big, wide, disky fish always, you know, give big vibrations like that. So I swam down to about, you know, 12, 15 metres, gone down, just shot this thing right in the middle on purpose, like big surgeon fish. And it's just started going... Because they take off, you let your gun, your gun's connected to a float line and a rope. So it takes off with your gun, you let it sort of play out a little bit and then you start, you know, I'm slowly just swimming up backwards, pulling my spear gun in towards me, you know, to pull this, just letting it just go off a bit to see what happened. Next thing, every single shark within fucking Kuwait has just come flying off the bottom in this, like as far as you could see in every direction, every shark is just swimming straight at me. Like, I mean, 30 to 50, 60 sharks from four feet to eight feet in this fucking pack just swimming full speed I'm just kicking backwards I'm trying to push my rope out of my hand just fucking kicking just going Whoa. 
they just come up in this ball. My fish is on the end of my spear, so it's fish, you know, good-sized fish, so maybe five, 600 mil long. They just come up in this ball of gnashing teeth and mouths and just hit this shark, hit this fish on my spear. They're biting my spear. My spear's getting ripped. There's this, like, fucking at the end of my fin, like, you know, from here to your bathroom, at the end of my feet, it's this ball of fucking rolling, mauling sharks with this noise of, of just clashing teeth, teeth on my spear going... <laughs> Just this fucking rolling ball right underneath me, man. I just absolutely thought I was fucking dead. It's the most full-on amazing thing I've ever fucking witnessed, just this full shark frenzy ball right at the end of my feet. And then, bang, they've just chopped this fish. The fish is gone, my spear. There's silvery scales just falling down. There's a few bits of fish. The sharks, next thing, just break off. They just start doing sort of big spinning loops and all drop off and just all fucking fade and glide down and all just disperse and disappear. And I just swim up and I get up to the top and Cadle is there. <laughs> Cadle's there at the top watching. <laughs> I look at him and he goes, you won't do that again, will you? <laughs> I was just like, holy fuck, man. And that was my first... Oh yeah, this is this is what they were talking about. You know, this is bang like that. You can just go from that quick, that quick. You know, they're just these super. They're just such. You a, were so comfortable to fuck me. And just super comfortable to fucking scared to absolutely death. Like whoa, fuck. You know. So yeah, that was me. That was the first real nation. That was a near, that was a close miss. Like I was, you know, just would have taking one of them to just come and have a bit of a chew on me then they all would have fucking latched on us you know you, you'd be fucked pretty quick so yeah that's you know we're amazing that. that they didn't they were just focused on that gnashing ball this silver they just fucking all it was just all about the fucking splashing movement you know that fucking freak run away if you're just floated suspended you're not vibrated you know so, you know, the, the thing that Lyle Sen used to say was you always had to get your hands on your fish as quick as you could, you know. To stop it moving. Yeah, to stop it moving, to stop that action, but it's in that transition period. So if you're shooting a fish and when you're grabbing it, it's still vibrating and going off, that's your really high-risk area. So, like, you know, I look in spearfishing mags and you see these pictures of these dudes holding up these nice fish and they've just got these shit shots in them. Like, you know, the big thing with those guys, anytime you shoot, oh, shit shot, it yeah. was all, oh, that was a shit. Fish. Yeah, it wasn't about the fish. It was about the quality of shot, you know. So it was this, it, it was a real... Um, good environment to learn all that really good spearing etiquette with the, the squires and that, that that hunting family so you know then in the progress of that we do the two brothers would rotate on trips so I'd dive with um, Lyle and do other trips with Cadle and we Lyle at the end of the day we'd dive on some inshore reef we'd go for a dive spear after work Rick let's go so he and I swim off and they had it they used to call it um, you'd swim in pairs and you'd have loose pairs um, 
DEFCON 1 and DEFCON 3 and the loose pairs you just swim together but you weren't you just sort of keep an eye on each other so you sort of stay close DEFCON 1 was oh hang on it's getting there's a few sharks around maybe stay a little bit close together and then DEFCON 3 was fucking power heads on like keep your shit together back like, to back yeah back to back kind of stuff almost you know so we are in just you know cruise mode and we're swimming around <clears throat> when you're diving those the outer the some of the reefs up there so they have an outer ring and the inside is like sand and they have little atoll bombies coming up everywhere so it was about you know 20 meters deep 25 meters deep around these atolls and bombies and while well, i would go one way around one and i'd go either and find coral trout but you dive down and you swim down to about 10 meters and you cruise along at 10 meters so you can see a bit further down you know because of the darkness and the camouflage of the fish but when you're doing that you're swimming down and you're, you're swimming forward but you're looking straight down you're not looking forward i'm not going down i'm just cruising along at sort of like you know 10 meters and i look up to you know lift my head up to start swimming up and i've had a head on with a shark that was as wider than me and doing exactly the same thing it was swimming along we just going and I've just gone like, Whoa! and it went, Whoa! and it kicked off and fucking took off that way. And I went, fucking took off that way. And I was like, fuck, that's a pretty big shit. Fuck, I haven't seen one of them before. Like, fuck, what was that? And it looked really different. It had a big round head and a long, thin body. And I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, right. Shit, I better go tall log because it was, it was big. It was 10, 12 feet long. It was the biggest thing I'd seen underwater, besides the whale. And anyway, so I, I get off, better go find Lyle. So I'm swimming over and I get over to where Lyle is. And just as I got to Lyle, I saw a, a rosy job fish. It's really fucking good fish. And I said, like, oh, fuck, forgot about the rosy job fish. And I've gone down and I've shot the rosy job fish and come up. So that's made a bit more action. And then because I've made a bit of action, Lyle's seen another rosy job fish. So Lyle's a gun spearer. So he's swam down. And that was it because the technique is one guy shoots, his attraction will bring another fish on and then you get reloaded by the time they've shot their fish and then you can go down and sometimes you can just... Repeat. Yeah, you can just go repeat, repeat and a coral trout will come out and another coral trout will come out and you whack that one and you whack that one, you know, <laughs> and they just keep coming. You're just loading up your fish. So... I've neglected that or I haven't had time to tell Lyle that I've seen this fucking big shark and anyway Lyle goes down and he's doing this technique I, I couldn't never really do, didn't not have the breath hold for it I can do it shallow but he's in you know 20 24 meters laying on the bottom and he's got his spear gun poking out this way and he's throwing up sand he's like laying on the sand and he's throwing up this cloud of sand and then, then he'd move out of it and the fish the rosy job fish circle you and they slowly each circle they'll come in a bit closer and so he's there waiting waiting to work his fish in he's throwing up his big sand he's got a big cloud so from where i'm over the top of him i'm doing my gun reload i'm getting all banged up ready you know just full reload hot reload i'm looking down and next thing I see, this tiger shark just swimming into Lyle from the blind side. Just, and I'm looking, and it's just going heading straight into his cloud of dust. And from where I am, it looked like a stingray because it's got a big, long. 
his spear gun's poking out of the dust uh-uh. and he's he's in this whole cloud of dust. So this tiger's just come in thinking he's a stingray just to fucking whack him. Just as it's gone into, as it's disappearing into the cloud, Lyle pulled his shot at the fish and his fish shot, the noise of his fish shot was enough to go off the bang and a fucking shark just came kicking up out of the thing like oh, I'm goosebumping again man like he was fucking hairy watching it and we were about a kilometre and a half from the boat like the boat was about this fucking big in the distance we were like an hour of swim from the boat still like way way away in through all this reef fucking live fires his shot then he just comes cruising up just comes swimming up to me the tiger no no wow. the tiger fucking bailed it yeah. took off and Lyle just comes cruising up, missed his fish, didn't miss the fish. And I go, fucking hell, man, big shark. And he's like, what? I said, a fucking big shark. You only got eaten by a shark. And he's like, yeah, and I'm thinking, holy fuck, this kind is as cool as a cucumber, man. But like, did he not see he it? He didn't see it. Yeah. He didn't even see it. Then anyway, he's like, oh, yeah, right, oh, yeah, just totally dismissed me just gave me no traction well anyway we start swimming off and start and I'm like I've got the wind right up me like I wasn't shooting was it the same one that you kept oh running? yeah it yeah. was a, it was a big it was 12 14 foot it was twice as long as him with his fins on it was a big big tiger shark and then we go and we start swimming our way back and Lyle's still shooting fish. I'm not fucking shooting a thing, man. I've got my powerhead ready. I'm just fucking winds up me. We're swimming along. I'm just like bagging up. Just feeling like the little what fucking... What you got, DEFCON 3? Yeah, I'm in DEFCON 3 mode. Lyle's like still Defcon fucking loose pairs. Yeah, he's just like, what? Next thing he shoots a fish, the fish takes off. It's stuck up in a cave. Lyle comes up to me and goes, give us your gun. I go, what are you going give us your gun. I'm going to put another shot in this thing. I'm like, oh, fuck, you're not getting me gun. Give us your fucking spear gun. Takes my gun off me, like, forcibly. Like, I'm just like, oh, fuck. And it was deep. You're vulnerable. You're a long way from the boat. It was just, it was, that was. Do you have a knife? Knife out? Wow, you got a pissy little fucking knife. Just yeah. <laughs> stab yourself with it and put yourself out of your misery before the action starts. Yeah, that was so that they're, they're me two proper they're me proper shark shark runnings. And yeah, then a few fucking ones where they come zooming over you and flying around and smashed a few but yeah, but they're me two shark. I haven't haven't seen a white hopefully, knock on wood. Yeah, knock on wood. Um, but it would be a beautiful animal to see under good circumstances. And this is what I was saying to you about looking for sharks. I was talking to one of the diver mates up home just yesterday, and he was saying, oh, Dougie, Dougie's seen four sharks. He's seen five white pointers. It's like, fucking hell, he's only been diving a few years, but he's seen five white pointers. Like, yeah, so some people are looking for him, and some people... You know, uh, well, tr- like they're kind of always around, right? Aren't well, they? it's their ocean, we're in their space. I think you know, if you gave me a choice of ways to die, I'd I'd choose getting chomped up in the jaws of a white pointer above dying in a car accident. You know, people jump in cars every day. 
You know, people all freaked out about sharks. You're in a car, what, a thousand people a year dying on the road. No one batters an eyelid driving in your car. Like, it is fucking so much more dangerous than dealing with a shark, you know, so... And it's not a natural... Like, being eaten's not nat- natural or nice either, but, like, being caught... But it is natural. Well, yeah, it's more Only natural part than part of the fucking food chain. Food chain. I get it. Um, but the unnaturalness of being crushed in a car... Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking maimed, all that shit. Fuck, you know. No, I've had, I've had three friends that have been bitten by whites, and they've all all survived. So, and I know, you know, I've lost. Do you ever meet Rodney Fox? Three or four? No, I've never met Rodney Fox, and I've met three or four, and I've lost three or four close friends in car accidents. So. Yeah, more freaked out about cars personally. Vic Hislop, you ever met him? Never met Vic Hislop. What about? Um, can you tell me one more quick story? Thank you so for this. This has been epic. Um, I, I want to know how you got robbed in Morocco. <laughs> robbed in Morocco? Fuck! I got robbed in Morocco within about five minutes of landing there. Much to my mate Christoph's fucking <laughs> shrieking delight. So hold on, did you? You went there on a surf trip. So I. Went to England for a wedding for a couple of weeks. My niece was getting married, said, yeah, I'll be there. Flew over there. Christoph and Samala, you know, local Torquay crew, always really wanted me to come to France. You've got to come to France. Rick, it was their last year of living and working over there. So, all right, go and see those guys. Two weeks turned into you can't leave yet. So, fuck yeah. So I stayed and I'm staying there for months. In the end, Christoph's like, oh, we've got to go on a surf trip, Rick. I was like, no coin, nothing. Christoph's, yeah, just super cool. Shouters, take us there. So we're flying to Morocco. This budget airline's so cheap to fly there from France, like 60 bucks or something. Got a hire car. We get this crash when we arrived there. There was no... Three planes arrived at once. It was 45 degrees. There was only three tellers. There was just this mad rush of the thing. It was full on. Christoph's barging his way through. I'm just getting squashed back. There's all these palms. It was fucking bizarre. Lost Christoph. Then find him again when we get in. Christoph's, oh, Rick, you're not going to go so good in Morocco. (laughs) I'm like all blowing out. It's fucking crazy. Arabs and crew, we get out to the car. We get this hard car get our boards we load up we drive out and we ask this guy for directions this dude's sort of talking to us then he's we drive off and we drive along next thing here's this same dude alongside us on a motorbike going follow me follow me I'm like yeah right here so we're following this guy and he's giving us direction he's taking us to all this spot and then we pull over, he goes, oh, now you pay. And I'd stupidly cashed money before Christoph, and Christoph said, you, you take care of this, Rick. You take, <laughs> you take care of this. So I'm going, like, how much? And I'm going, five pounds. And the guy's going, ah, oh, five pounds. So, I, you know, he hangs on to my five pounds, and I go, ten pounds. Next thing, I'd given him, like, 15, 20 pounds. He hadn't given me any of my money back. He just got his money in my hand, rides off. And I'm looking at Chris, I'm looking at all the money. He's gone out of man. He goes, oh, Rick, you are not going to go very well in Morocco. <laughs> and that was it. So that was robbed within the first five minutes. We hadn't even fucking got it half a K from the airport. 
And then we ventured a bit further in, had our all our surf trip, and then we were touring around in Marrakesh, and it got fucking... So, hot on, you've been surfing? So, we've been surfing... I was gypped all the way along there by Christoph. I think we were smoking way too much of the local hashish. Did you get good ways? We didn't get really good waves, but it was pretty. We weren't there at the best season. There was a few waves at the start. There were some super windy waves, really rocky, volcanic, like really nasty coast. It was just like, yeah, it was sort of young man's kind of country, young man's sport, super windy. I hate the windy surf, but we got some good surf. We had a had a real good time, and then cruised in Marrakesh out there at the markets they've got these fucking snake charmer dudes we're there next thing this guy comes up drops a fucking snake around my neck holds it in two hands pushes it up like it's a snake like a necktie holding this snake so it's tails wrapped around your throat yeah it's wrapped around my neck with him holding it the head holding the head wrapping it on like this and starts asking me for my phone. Give me your phone. Your money or your phone. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck. Just, oh, it was pretty gnarly. Yeah, was it so, a king cobra? Oh, my niece is a snake expert and she reckoned it was a, um, a boom slang, which is a very deadly African snake of some description, boom slang. But they, they had all these asps and boom slangs and cobras and they had this whole pile and bags of snakes it was fucking full on I was seeing they getting trying to get Christoph to kiss the snake and Christoph so did, did, you get, did you end up giving them anything no I think you got some money out of me yeah because it was the only way I was going to get the snake off my neck it was just yeah it was fucking it was full on <laughs> snake charm and surf trip Morocco yeah but I, I, as a surf ten- destination it'd be a have you been there? No. No, no, it's, it's awesome. It's a good place to go back and spend some time. The French are pretty full on. I don't know if it's a real good country for women. No, I've, my brother's been and he said it, it, he took every ounce of him. He went with his girlfriend. Yeah, he yeah, said, yeah. They're so rude. They're rude. They have no drop. respect for women. You never see women every, anywhere, none of the shops. You never deal or talk to women or anything like that. They're, yeah, it's pretty... Um, yeah, he was like, I just wanted to punch every bloke that was like... Yeah, yeah. It was like just, he wasn't there. Yeah. And I vertically like trying to feel her up and he's yeah. just like, what the... F-? And you can't punch him because then you, you're dead yourself. Uh, yeah, he said it was rough. Yeah. But good ways, huh? <laughs> wow, we didn't get any good ways. We had a good time. It was pretty amazing. We did some... We went on this... Out to this... Um, uh, an oasis there was like this amazing oasis you could go out to so we did this big expedition out no surf day we're going to drive out go check out this oasis we get to where the oasis is and they've got guides you know to take you this is up in the Atlas Mountains you know you want a guide Chris I'm sorry we don't need a guide I, uh, you know I speak French <laughs> so fuck <laughs> we take off without a guide it was literally fucking 45 degrees man it was so freaking hot we've got no water I've got <laughs> I got a little backpack with a quarter bottle of water. We got a fucking half an ounce of hash. We're just stoned to the fucking eyeballs. We go wandering, meandering down these tracks. It's like walking into the Mekong Valley. There's fucking turds everywhere and dunny paper and trucks going this way and that. I've stopped for a piss. I've lost Christoph. Christoph's wandered up. We're making our way down into this valley. 
up in front of me, I can hear this French accent. I can hear French. I'm like, oh, that must be Christoph. So I'm trying to catch up to this accent. <laughs> Finally, we get up and get to this spot and you come to this, it opens up. There's this beautiful valley, this big high-sided valley with this amazing, um, you know, landscape. And it's marble. The whole bottom, all the stone is marble. And it's um, contoured by all the, you know, thousands, millions of years of water. It's all smooth and coloured, just absolutely beautiful. And there is fucking rubbish everywhere. What? All through the water, there's bottles, plastic bags. We're fucking dying of thirst, like nearly breaking down. Fuck, no water. I'm looking, there's no Christophs or, or the spot, all the tourists are here. There's no Christoph. I'm like, oh, fuck, he must be in front of me. This track goes up over the hill and you can go another few kilometers to the head of this sort of gorge section. I'm thinking, oh, fuck, Christoph must be in front of me. So I've just started hiking again. I'm trying to catch him. It's uphill. I'm sweating, cramped. Fucking get all the way to the top end. Still no Christoph. By this time, it's like, fuck I'm starting to get hypothermic or you know um, hyperthermic dehydrated dehydrated I'm cramping I'm starting to freak out haven't seen Christoph now for a couple of hours it's hot I'm lost I'm scared (laughs) (laughs) I'm fucking turn around head back down and here comes Christoph and he was about in the same condition as me do you have water do you have water (laughs) fuck we had like this tiny we had about 300 ml of water like we're just sipping on that and went back down went back down found this crew went for when yeah ended up walking up this gorge and, and yeah that was just the one memory of it. it was just so beautiful and just had so much rubbish in there it was just fucking rubbish man so like back in the olden days you would think that that's what like these desert mirages depicted you know like they had well this is more up in the mountains it wasn't like a real desert mirage it was like a real mountainous fucking oasis it was supposed to be like the forget what the name of it was but it was like some you know premier oasis spot but it was like a wonder of the world yeah it was just like oh the marble there man this this smooth marble was just amazing and then we went out for a swim and we actually came across these chicks and as there was like a group of chicks and they had a guide with them one of the moroccan guides that <laughs> you guys opted out that of. we opted out of and the chicks go to us be careful we've just had all our bags stolen and we were like oh what fuck you know and they'd and this was the ploy of these guides what they do is they fucking guide you up there and then they take you up to the thing and they oh let's swim up here you put your bags down and they got their mate there and he just comes and fucking goes through your bags so we just like didn't leave our staff we had a swim we saw one of those amazing lizards a chameleon man there was a lizard uh the big ones yeah. no 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 the, the is it a chameleon the lizard with three fingers they're amazing little creature and big eyes that's the most amazing lizard it was there was one of those there we checked that out had our swim then we went back down and then when we got back to the main oasis area where there's a shop and that we see the guide who had taken these chicks for a swim and he was standing there with his mate who was a dude dressed in full camo so he was obviously the fucking the bag snatcher you know you could see him sort of smiling you know working as a pair now that they were moroccan women though from you know they were locals so locals have got jacked yeah they were they were they didn't care they'd steal from whoever it was pretty 
it was pretty um nailed down everything over there there's lots of story they're pretty good crims over yeah, there yeah yeah and they got no respect for the for the white people and stuff yeah, and then when we were driving out of there, we you know driving out of this road out of these mountains. We pull up where this road work, and I look out the window, and here's this friggin' nautilus shell fossil, like a giant fossil, like a real fossil, just like where they've graded the side of the road. Hey, Christoph, stop, man! It's a, it's a fucking nautilus shell fossil. Jump out, it's this fossil. If I get another one, it's like next thing I'm just grabbing all these giant fossils, you know, like five, six kilo rocks. So, yeah, grabbed all these fossils, brought them home. He brought them back to Australia? No, no, I didn't make it to Australia. I took them to the airport and Christoph's going, man, there's no way they're going to let yeah. you take those Moro- those artifacts out of Australia. And you think so? I'll put them in my hand luggage. So I've got these, I think they had like five or four or five of these. Fucking Indiana Jones. Yeah, <laughs> these rocks in my bag was about 40 kilos. Christoph, yeah, you'll never get that through. You'll never get that through. Christoph had neglected to take out his Oppenel knives. You know, those Frenchies love their Oppenels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. handle thing. Yeah, yeah. So he's got his Oppenel knife. He hasn't taken his Oppenel knife out of his carry-on bag. It's set off the metal detector, which has diverted the fucking... the attention away from me. <laughs> Next thing, they've taken all his knives off him. I just wandered through with me... Fossils. With me fossils. Dr. Jones, you got through. <laughs> I got through. I left him, I gave him, I left him with um, Fipsy in France. That was, that was my um, departing gift for Fipsy. Yeah, I'll pay you with a couple of fossils, that money. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Priceless, these things. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. That was it. Shouldn't have left. Shouldn't have left France? Yeah, no, I was pretty good there. I was, I was good. Should have spent a little bit more time there. You can see why 50 just hangs out? Yeah, yeah. Rick, I'm going to say thank you so much. No worries, T. I am super appreciative. Put it here. All right, cheers, man. Thank you. All right. I'm glad baby. Yeah. You killed it on this one, man. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Malakuta Rick. Um, thank you so much, Rick, for coming over and sharing that, uh, that those stories with me. Um, thank you if you're out there listening. I appreciate your ears. Um, and, um, yeah, whoever you are out there, I hope you're faring well. Um, I hope these stories... Uh, have inspired you to do some um, adventuring and traveling um, and go out there and and find it um, you know throw caution to the wind and let chips lay where they may a little that's the pincher quote from true romance i love that movie um but yeah adventure outside it's hard to leave netflix i know but anyway nonetheless onward and upward and thanks again see you next time <laughs> <laughs>